This episode of the Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Theo Fattel, Edward Hart, and Brady Turner, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. Welcome to the Forge. Hello, Demonation, and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and tonight we have a monster truck of an episode for your listening pleasure. In diecasting, we'll be jumping in the driver's seat to take a look at the various skills used to get your vehicles from point A to point B. In the furnace, we begin the first of our multi-show discussion on vehicles in the Genesis role-playing game. In Breaking the Mold, we'll be talking to Phil Mayuski and Beth Foote about the latest offerings from 404 Games. And of course, we'll be answering your games and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, let me introduce you to my podcast co-pilot, or as I like to call him, the guy who called Shotgun first. It's GM Chris. Chris, how are you going? I'm pondering whether I'm the Chewy to your Han or whether you're the Han to my Chewy. I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe I'm Han and you're Chewy. Or maybe we could do the Lando hand thing. I think that's a better option. Lando, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Let's do that. Let's, yeah, let's, let's do that. I get to be Lando. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm good, man. I'm I'm good. I'm good. It's been a it's been a wild and crazy couple weeks. Mm, it has. I got some interesting news, uh, you know, and rumor and things like that that we're eager to kind of talk about. We'll get to. Mm. But um, and and dude, we have we have. I, I hate you. This this is going to be such a long show. I'm very excited for the show. I'm mm. very excited. This is going to be a great topic. It's something that that you're an expert in, and I'm I'm you know I'm I'm moderately knowledgeable in. Mm. But you've run so much more of this particular topic about vehicles tonight. So I'm I'm so eager to. To, to pick your brain and get into this, but we we got a lot to get to, man. Should we, we should we dive in and, and maybe talk about what's new on the Foundry? Yeah, absolutely. A few things to whet our listeners' appetite for the Genesis content. So let's get into stoking the fire. Stoking the fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role playing game. But first, Chris. Would you like to tell us about D20 Radio's podcast of the week? Of course. Now, if you're a Star Wars fan, and you likely are if you're listening to this show, then you are, if you are not already listening to the Guardians of the Wills podcast, you have to start immediately. Um, Not only does the crew regularly post up actual play episodes using the Star Wars RPG from FFG, but they devote half their episode count to exploring the wondrous world of Star Wars Legends, formerly Expanded Universe, material. (laughs) Um, And just this past week, they've been reviewing a lot of really great content, right? Really amazing books and and, and novels and comics and things that have come out. But there have been a fair number of duds. (laughs) 
<laughs> that have been published. And I've been waiting. I'm like, guys, I, I know you need to get to one of these and rip it a new one. Like, let's do it. And finally, they dropped episode 15, um, which is devoted to what many, myself included, consider to be the campiest dud in the Star Wars novels. The Crystal Star. <laughs> Man, and Neil and Dustin, they get into it heavy. So uh, it's, a, it's a great episode. Mm. Um, a laugh Go give it a listen. Um, you guys can find that and more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20radio.com. Now, one thing that I just want to mention, and it's not on our network, Chris, but we did mention it on social media earlier this week, uh, and that's the guys from Garblug RPG One Shot who actually did a little podcast, uh, a bit of a live play, um, using a certain setting that we know really well. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it was really trippy. I mean, yeah, they're not D20 Radio, but it's it's. Um, I, I listened, to, I watched the show. It was great. Um, these guys did a live play with my familiar setting, mm. uh, which was quite surprising. <laughs> um, and and they they did a great job with it. Um, and you can listen to the podcast. You can go find them, or also on YouTube as well. They did. Yeah. They have a a full video. Um, you know, uh, uh, actual play. Mm. Uh, so if you guys want to see familiar in play, uh, it's a it's a great way to do it. I was I was. I was abashed and honored. I was I was thrilled that they did it, and they did it justice too. They did a good job. Absolutely, and it and it's really really good. You know, I, I'd love that setting, and I wish I could play it more. But uh, uh, so it was a nice thing to listen to to be able to experience that thing again, which I did at Game of Con. But we'll talk about that later on. So yeah. before we get into uh, things, uh, last week you posted up an announcement that um, set the internet into a spin, especially those fans of Genesis, Star Wars, and Legend of the Five Rings RPGs. Now, I think we it would be a little amiss for us to, uh, to not talk about that for a moment. So what actually happened? Well, just, you know, as, as we communicated on this show some time ago, uh, right around the, the first week of January... Um, you know, the sad news that that Fantasy Flight had laid off their entire RPG staff. Mm. Um, and, and there were a lot of rumors floating around. FFG wasn't confirming anything. People are saying, OK, how are you going to make RPGs without an RPG staff? Some people said, you know, well, they're going to go for the freelancer model. Mm. Um, we knew they had also actually hired someone back into the fold, um, friend of the show uh, who's actually been on with us, uh, Katrina Ostrander, mm-hmm. um, was brought in as, as head of story. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really positive news. Um, but... Uh, we at D20 Radio were able to independently confirm um, from someone in the organization um, that the the long term plan was to to long term plan long term was to discontinue RPG development. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's not entirely surprising when you consider they laid off their RPG staff. Um, honestly, it really hasn't surprised me personally uh, since um, you know the Asmodee purchase since and Asmodee the year prior to purchasing FFG was purchased by a French private equity firm. Mm. So I mean, private equity firms exist to fatten up companies for sale. That's what they do. And when you're doing that, you get rid of all your low margin product portfolios, and RPGs are very low margin. Mm. You know, we 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 wrote about it. Um, uh, there was actually. Um, uh, uh, there was actually a Twitter confirmation, very brief. Also, somebody actually talked to, since she works there, talked to Katrina Ostrander um, uh, Lee about it um, on, on Twitter, and she very briefly confirmed that that's what she'd heard as well, mm. uh, which was interesting. Um, but yeah, the internet kind of went crazy, um, mm. as you can quite imagine. And <laughs> just recently, in the past week, FFG actually released a public announcement saying the opposite. Um, <laughs> they didn't do it like through an official channel. Um, mm. It was through like a 
uh, comments on like a live broadcast they were doing. Yep. Um, where they basically said, you know, no, we, 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 you know, we, we don't, you know, we, we have plans, you know, stay tuned, you know, an announcement will come soonish, mm. um, which the internet is kind of taking with a grain of salt. Yep. So yeah, it, it's been kind of interesting and there's been a lot of, I mean, question and concern around, I mean, you know, if, if they're going to be discontinuing, you know, RPG development, what does that mean for the foundry? Mm. And, you know, the, the general consensus is that they would be kind of foolish to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, mostly because it's, it's basically free money. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, this is what it is. Um, and you know, let's, and, and then, and then not only did they say that recently, but then they surprised us in that same uh, talk by announcing a new product for, uh, legend of the, for, for L5R, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, um, it's, uh, very much sort of around the spiritual realm and some of the artwork is absolutely fantastic, but let's not also forget about the other announcement, Genesis-related, that they came up with uh, during this week as well, which was very interesting, but we'll talk about that in a moment. I think from here on in, we're probably going to hear less and less from FFG, um, just in case that it is affecting other things. Um, If there is some sort of a sale or something like that, that, um, you know, they're going to be very tight-lipped and it really is going to be a case of watch their website. Uh, to uh, to find an, on any announcements, so um, you know we've we've still got uh, the KeyForge um, setting yep. source book to look forward to, and that comes out I think either next month or the month after. So um, you know there's still a bit to to digest, and um, you know hopefully that will open up a few interesting things that uh, that we haven't seen before. Uh, and certainly the the preview that they had recently does the same sort of thing. And it really sort of says that, um, you know, there's there's going to be rules and therefore creating species and things like that. So, yeah, that looks really interesting. So a lot more to, yeah. to, to see in the future, I think. It, it looks amazing, you know. And, you know, D20 Radio, you know, we, we report on what we've, we've learned from our source. Mm. But I can truly say that if 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 we're wrong in that, I would never be so happy to be wrong in my life. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that would be that would be great. Um, you know, so I, I sincerely hope that FFG continues the banner, maybe using freelancers or other resources. Um, and honestly, if they're considering a sale of the RPG, you know, portfolio, I sincerely hope another talented publisher picks up the helm and keeps moving with it mm. because it's a it's a young game, it's a young system. Yep. And the other thing too is, you know, between the uh, frankly between the core rules and the foundry we kind of have enough to keep us going in perpetuity. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so that's what's even more exciting, I think. But Especially, yeah. especially when you see the, the quality of content that is out there, not just from, you know, a fluff perspective, and we'll talk about that later on when we, uh, when we talk to, uh, to Phil and Beth, but, um, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of stuff that which is out there which is mechanically sound as well. Um, you know, from the, the, the likes of Christopher Rithenbeck and from, uh, from Scott Zumwalt, um, and a plethora of, of other people that are really putting great mechanical work into, into their books. So, um, yeah, you're right. Um, we could go on forever. Well tested, well designed stuff. Mm. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. And so on that note, Huli, let's mm. talk about some of this. Yes. Because, Honestly, we got some pretty amazing new content uh, to get to as we kind of open up the foundry and take a look at what's inside 
this episode. Absolutely, we can, Chris. But before we get into that, uh, coming out of left field this week was an announcement from FFG with news of the forthcoming release of Mutant Invasion, a Genesis role-playing game supplement card pack designed to expand the content we'll be seeing in Keyforge, Secrets of the Crucible, a source book hopefully we'll be seeing on the shelves of our local gaming stores very, very shortly. Now, this is something that I alluded to earlier uh, with um, more announcements um, uh, from FFG. So, um, so yeah, it sort of stems back to what you were saying, Chris, that, um, you know, this is not necessarily the end or uh, perhaps there's, uh, there's more on the way. Mm. Um, now, in this article, FFG tells us that the pack contains 40 oversized cards stuffed with information for players and game masters alike, a brand new playable species for the game, rules for incorporating the mutative dark amber or ember or however it's pronounced into your games adventure builders locations and over 30 npc adversaries to populate your adventures now if you're planning to take your genesis adventures to the crucible the mutant invasion supplement pack brings even more of the diversity and wonder that makes the Keyforge card games mass mutation set so compelling. Uh, they also give us some samples of the fantastic artwork and a preview of one of the adversaries, Bad Penny. Now, she's an elusive elven rogue. Uh, along with uh, that, she, uh, she has a bit of a backstory there. Uh, several story options on how to bring her into your Keyforge campaign and all of the Genesis stats uh, that we love from these adversary decks. Uh, this is due for release in the second quarter of 2020. Uh, and, um, you know, this is a product which is very, very similar to what we see come from Realms of Terranoth and Shadow of the Beanstalk with, uh, with their adversary cards. Uh, uh, something that has happened since um, the start of um, the Star Wars RPG. So uh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, 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 I hope, again, as we kind of said before, I, I hope this is indicative of something really good mm. um, and, and continual. But I'm excited for this uh, and I hope we get a lot more of it. Mm, absolutely but okay so now i can make i forgot about that that announcement so now i can make a proper segue (laughs) um speaking of more of it and getting more of it we've been getting more of it in in the foundry so i think we do have some exciting things to delve into indeed we do uh so um the first product from the trickster of terranoth Chris Markham, who's back at it again, with a product he teased last time he was on the show, Zanagan Zoology Part 1. This, uh, this Terranoth beastery follows the fearless exploits of Nigel Vanderhorn delving deep into the jungles of Zananga. <laughs> the fearless exploits of Nigel Vanderhorn. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, and it describes 12 different native flora and fauna dangerous to any who might visit those dark and remote jungles, including dangerous insects, man-eating plants, and large prehistoric reptiles. It's, it's amazing. I love it. This supplement provides 12 new Zanagan creatures with pictures, stats, and even the new power levels from the Expanded Player's Guide, along with additional information about Zananga. Uh, and a bonus Terranoth-themed adversary cards, which are also included in the pack for each creature. So it's a great product and an absolute steal at only two ninety-five. And the Terranoth machine, that is the aforementioned Markham, <laughs> continues with yet another new Terranoth supplement recently released 
Terranoth Treasures Volume 1. Mm. Terranoth Treasures Volume 1 is a supplement that provides 15 new Terranoth-specific magic items. Each is derived specifically from previous lore in the Terranoth setting um, from sources like Runebound and Descent. Um, but now with brand new art and, and rules adapted for Genesis. In addition, uh, Terranoth Treasures also provides new optional rules for crafting these magical items and others, mm. uh, as well as suggested pricing guidelines to help GMs develop and adapt their own magical items for their campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, specific arcane components and costs are like broken down for each item uh, to allow characters to actually obtain like rare and costly materials during adventures, mm. you know, which could provide adventure hooks, you know, like getting a rare component um, and to really also give the GM some control as to the availability of these very rare ingredients in order to limit the players because these 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 uh, magic items, some of them are exceedingly powerful. <laughs> very, very cool resource. And it's only $3.95. Um, absolutely great. Or you can get it along with Chris Markham's prior Terranoth supplement, which we had him on the show to talk about, mm -hmm. Terranoth Taverns, and the aforementioned by Huli, Zanagan Zoology Part 1, in a special bundle deal, all three products that Chris is offering on the Foundry for a discounted total price of $4.95. Wow, that's cool. Absolutely yeah, that's, cool. that's a huge discount um, to get them all. Five bucks to get three awesome Terranoth supplements that will, will benefit you well. Uh, honestly, if you didn't get Terranoth Taverns and Zanagan Zoology and, and Terranoth Treasures Intrigue, you, you can get them all for five bucks right now. That's a really good deal. Mm, incredible deal indeed. But there is something not included in that bundle, and that's yet another supplement by Chris Markham. The man is a literal machine. Sneaking into the foundry just before our recording is Ministries of Minara, a fantastic supplement expanding on some of the gods of Minara, first introduced in Realms of Terranoth, as well as some additional information about gods referenced in past Terranoth lore. This product goes into specific details about 10 gods and includes an example of each god's holy symbol and more information about the clergy of each deity. It also provides additional information for GMs so that they can use the gods in their campaign. Uh, this is a great supplement that will be handy in my own games and hopefully all of our listeners as well. It's a fantastic price point of only $2.95 um, and really it is a supplement not to be missed. So absolutely fantastic. Go and check it out. Um, speaking of machines, next on the list is the return of some much fan-loved goodness from the master himself, Keith Kappel, who comes back with yet more content for his Ready Fight Compendium with the third micro-supplement, micro-supplement number three, War Done Stone Grip. Great name. I love it. Um, it. It includes the full details for the NPC adversary War Done Stone Grip, a monk with a crushing grip. It uh, has an in-depth NPC write-up that provides story hooks, motivations, and advice to work War Drum into your campaign and bring him to life at the table. It also gives us the details of one brand new faction, the Order of the Pure Stone, uh, a group of um, iconoclast dwarven monks dedicated to freeing mountains from dwarven mining at any cost, along with guidance for reskinning the Kunvu animal forms in the new Order of the Pure Stone's mineral styles. And this micro supplement also gives us one new Realm of Terranoth career, the Dwarven Monk. Amazing content. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's only a buck, so you've got no excuse. Go buy it right now. What he said. <laughs> mm, 
And next up is a new adventure from the man himself, Scott Zumwalt, uh, with a new release called And the Stars Never Rise, uh, a something strange Genesis adventure. And based on the title alone, I would think it almost sounds Lovecraftian, which is freaking awesome. Um, (laughs) This adventure takes three to six player characters through a simple story that serves as a really great introduction to the world of something strange. Um, Included are six complete pre-gen characters uh, with artwork backgrounds. Um, Also included are library research rules, Mm. uh, something that he didn't have in the original setting book. Um, but honestly, they're really cool. They're compatible with any Genesis setting, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and dude, just as usual, another beautiful and outstanding product from Scott. Uh, and at four ninety five, it's a great way to dip your toes into something strange. Um, if you haven't already, it's a really fun setting that can, at its core, is a lot of fun in terms of what he's laid out, but can be used to accommodate virtually any type of modern horror sci-fi role playing. So awesome sauce yeah and, and scott's certainly done a lot of playtesting with this uh i've seen his posts around uh, asking for playtesters uh and he's been shipping that around the country a lot of people in la because he, he obviously spends a, a bit of time in there but um but anyway and uh we've also got more content uh that has hit the foundry from our friends of the podcast uh 404 games with their latest release Starkana the Silver Files. This huge and amazingly well-written product is the first expansion to the Starkana campaign setting, focusing on the mysterious force of Starkana. The uh, the Silver Files contain details on locations within the galaxy that are influential to Starkana and a newfound phenomenon known as bleed. So um, yeah, hopefully we'll be hearing that for, about that very shortly. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that means places that are scattered across the galaxy where Starkana changes the landscape itself. If that doesn't get you wanting this supplement, I don't know what will. And it's only seven ninety five. So, um, you know, th- this, this product is amazing. And honestly, we can tell you more about it and rave on about it. But why hear about it from us? When later into the episode of The Forge, you can hear it from the horse's mouth when we speak with Phil Majewski and Beth Foote of 404 Games about this great product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is a good product, and I cannot wait to chat in depth about it. But we have one more thing to talk about. Lastly, <laughs> we have an exciting yet also somewhat sad new entry from Roy Altman, a.k.a. RPG Narco. Uh, kind of the accessory maven is what he's become. Hmm. So if the rumors that we talked about are true and FFG does ultimately shutter their RPGs in the long term, we're going to have a hard time getting dice. Hmm. Um, and to that end, uh, Roy brings us the Genesis Dice DIY kit for $3.99. Hmm. Uh, the product actually comes with two separate PDF template files. Uh, the first is literally a Genesis Dice Stickers template, um, <laughs> which for those of us who were around for the Star Wars beta, <laughs> we know those sticker templates all too well. Yeah. The beta was really before the dice came out. <laughs> so you can literally use your home printer and, 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 and sticker paper, like a full-page sticker sheet, to transform any standard RPG or blank RPG dice set into a Genesis dice set. Hmm. Then, for the more bold among us, it also includes uh, the second uh, PDF template, um, is the Genesis Dice Papercraft template. (laughs) For if you don't have any access to physical or even digital dice whatsoever, (laughs) you can print, cut, fold, and glue to create your own handmade Papercraft Genesis Dice 
Uh, Roy, I love you, and I, and I, I please, please understand the sentiment, sentiment by which I say this. I hope this product doesn't need to sell well. <laughs> I, I sincerely hope it won't be needed, but mm. in case it is, thank you for bringing it to us. Yeah, absolutely. The the interesting thing with uh, with I can't imagine cutting them all out and pasting them all together. That would just be maybe it's I do, pa- <laughs> I do paper craft terrain with my kid. Really? Uh, wow. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah we she has a ball doing it. Mm. Um, it uses a lot of printer ink, but um, <laughs> uh, it's well worth it, man. Yeah. yeah, very very cool. Now you can obviously find these and many more great Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. Mm-hmm. And while you're surfing the web, why not jump over and become a supporter of the Forge Podcast by joining our Patreon <laughs> for as little as $2 a month. You can access our dedicated Discord server where you can interact with fellow Forgians. Yes, I think we're, I'm going I'm to make it stick. Um <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps, I don't know, it was Alex Newbold, one of our fans, suggested on Facebook our fans should be called the Blacksmiths. Yeah, we'll keep working on it. Um. <laughs> okay, then. Uh, well, anyway, uh, higher tiers um, in the Patreon provide priority for your game and rules questions. Uh, with our largest tier, not only providing you with a special thank you at the top of the show, but also a special monthly get-together with either myself or Huli to discuss your Foundry product or your ongoing campaign. Um, and some of the stuff we've been getting is pretty damn fine, let me tell you. Mm. Uh, of course, no matter how much you can spare, uh, it is appreciated, and all of your donations really help us out. It helps the podcast directly so we can continue providing you with excellent regular Genesis content. That's right, Gamer Nation. Join the Forge community by becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Mm-hmm. Okay, Huli. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you buckled up? I'm buckled up, but I'm ready for some serious rules discussions. Damn right. Batteries to power, <laughs> turbines for speed. Let's get the pedal to the metal. Check out die casting. Die casting. So the Forge podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table, and the Genesis RPG provides us all with a powerful set of tools to do so, specifically through skills and talents. Our diecasting segment is about closely examining individual skills, individual talents, and how they relate to the games you play and to the creations you craft. Last episode, we took a look at Skullduggery, uh, the skill, and we explored some pretty cool ways to use the skill in your creations for the Foundry and in your own campaigns, um, introducing a couple of nice homebrew talents as well mm. that emphasize the use of the Skullduggery skill. Mm. Tonight, however, we are going to really keep this show on theme, um, and we are going to talk about the various skills used to operate the various vehicles that populate our campaigns, including some completely non-vehicle-related skills that can apply. <laughs> That's right. And tonight we're going to discuss each of the vehicle control skills, uh, including driving, piloting and operating, uh, along with a couple of other hangers on as well. Uh, How do they work? Who can best use them? What are some interesting ways to use them outside of vehicles, including all the raw and non-raw ways to use the skills uh, that you can develop for your own game or your upcoming Foundry product? All right. So let's talk about the basics. What are these three skills? What are they? So the three skills that we've got are driving, piloting, and operating. So, you know, instead of our our general long, deep dives into each skill, we're going to do a little bit of a summary. Uh, And uh, then we're going to really focus on on what differentiates each of the three uh, vehicle control skills from each other. So with driving, it's an agility-based skill. Um, it's on page 60 of the core rulebook. 
the skill use uh, it's used to operate ground-based vehicles. Uh, this means things like automobiles and motorcycles, locomotives, and even futuristic versions of all of the above. So if it's a vehicle and it stays on the ground, it's going to be using driving. <laughs> now, that's uh, in comparison to the next skill, which is piloting, um, yeah. also based on agility. Core rulebook, page 62. If driving is a skill used to operate ground-based vehicles, piloting is a skill used to operate aerial vehicles hmm. with a big asterisk. <laughs> aerial vehicles that require reflexes and hand-eye coordination to operate. Hmm. This means helicopters, smaller airplanes, gyrocopters, fighter jets, starfighters, dropships, stuff like that. <laughs> um, if it's a vehicle that flies around and it relies on a pilot's reflexes, use the piloting skill. Now, the last of the skills is the operating skill, which is very different to the others. It's intellect-based. It's in the core rulebook on page 62. The, uh, this particular skill is used to operate large vehicles that require you know, a training, a really sharp mind, and the ability to keep track of lots of information all at once in order to keep the vehicle functioning. In other words, vehicles that are so big and complex that, you know, just good reflexes and a steady hand that we see from the other two is just not going to be enough to operate successfully. And this is whether these vessels drive, fly, or even sail. Now, this means that most sailing ships, merchant steamers, submarines, warships, zeppelins and even dirigibles uh, and large spaceships like what we see in star wars such as the you know the the massive star destroyers or even in battlestar galactica when we see the battle stars themselves anything that needs an honest to goodness crew is going to fall into this category so basically if it's large and it's a vehicle and it has a crew and it relies on the organization and training of its crew to run and operate, it's going to use operating as the main skill. Now, each of these skills has some very specific examples of when to use them and when not to use them. But it's really, you know, without going into too much detail, you guys can read, um, it, it's really worth noting some commonalities between all three skills. Yep. Um, uh, so when, when, when should we use the skill, Huli, whether it's driving, piloting, or operating? When should you use it? So basically, you're going to be using these skills whenever you're trying to steer the vehicle through difficult terrain or a challenging scenario. Uh, you're also going to use the skill when you're trying to push the limits of the vehicle or, or do something wild and, and non-standard. So, you know, high performance driving, for example, or or flying through canyons and things like that. Got it. But the, the question is, though, when not to use the skill. And this is interesting because it's very similar for all three. Mm. Um, the first and most common is when you're not uh, when you're doing something that's not difficult, or most importantly, and probably better said, with no negative or catastrophic consequences for failure. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I I I have to say this at the game table too often. I have mm -hmm. to say this all the time. Okay. If you get Huli, I know you too. How often have you heard a player, whether it's Genesis or Star Wars, say, "Oh, I can't be the pilot. I don't have any ranks in pilot." Mm. How, many, how often have you heard that? At the All table? the time. It happens a lot when you're with new players because they look at it and go, "Well, I don't have a skill in that. That I can't do it." Well, that's not necessarily true. Exactly. Look, you, the player, don't likely have any ranks in in driving. 
But that doesn't mean that you, you know, you can't drive. It just means potentially that you're really not a high performance Formula One driver, but you can <laughs> still drive. <laughs> That that's that's the analogy you always use to people. It's like it's like, look, you can drive. You as a person can drive, but you're not a NASCAR driver. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I actually actually told that to a player once, and he looked at me and he it was it was, it was the first time playing with him. Yep. He looked at me and he goes, "You don't know me." <laughs> <laughs> um, it was very funny. Uh, but but that's the thing. It's like it's it's the same analogy. It's like you you can drive. You have a driver's license. You can get in a car and you can drive. But that 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 does not equate to ranks in a quote-unquote driving skill. Hmm. That, that's if you're a NASCAR driver or a Formula One driver, a high-performance driver, someone who really, you know, a street racer, somebody who can really do that. Hmm. <clears throat> and, and the reason is none of us in our daily lives are likely to ever have to make a driving skill check, okay? <laughs> there, there's typically very little consequences. None of us are taking cars on risky maneuvers it doesn't it doesn't happen that way okay and if if the 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 proverbial poo hits the proverbial fan hmm. that's when an accident happens you failed your check because you don't have ranks <laughs> okay um yep. now if, if there's an accident that happens and you manage to baby driver your way through it all wow you've got some <laughs> ranks in driving but that's the whole point you don't even need to make a driving or piloting or operating check if there's no if you're not doing anything risky that was going to is going to punish you for failure. Yeah. That's that's the point. Mm. So there's that. There's also uh, two other very important ones that are that are worth noting, although they make a lot of sense. Um, attempting to repair a vehicle mm -hmm. um, is never done with the uh, with the handling skill used for the vehicle. Um, that's that's mechanics straight up. Mm -hmm. Also, firing a vehicle weapon or a weapon that's mounted on a vehicle. Um, that there is a combat check <laughs> and would thus be the, the domain of either gunnery or another appropriate ranged skill, not piloting or driving or, oper or operating. Yeah. So Earlier, we also mentioned that there are a few hangers on as far as different skills go. Yeah. So yep. we kind of need to mention these unorthodox control skills. And, and this is mentioned on page 59 of the Expanded Players Guide. Now, it says that a control skill for a vehicle can be something other than those three skills. For example, athletics and coordination. Um, it may be appropriate for vehicles like bicycles and parachutes and surf and sailboards and even rowboats to an extent. Um, riding uh, is appropriate for things like animals and carts and chariots and coaches. And uh, even survival if you're not using the riding skill in your setting. Yeah. Now, an argument could be made even, uh, and this is a bit of a stretch, but it could even be made for resilience for the same reasons that we discussed back at episode nine when we talked about marathon runners versus sprinters. So just remember to allow your players to use a skill that they feel may be appropriate and can readily justify. Remember to increase the difficulty based on how removed it may be from the skill that should be being used. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like for something like a long distance rowboat race. Yeah, I could see resilience, but not to control the vehicle, just no. to win the race. Yeah, um, exactly. Nobody's doing high risk maneuvers or, uh, <laughs> or or collisions in in, you know, in, in when racing skulls, you know, it no. doesn't. <laughs> it, this is true. It, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work that way. You know, but even even consequently, if you watch like um if you watch like yacht racing, you know? Yep. Which is mm -hmm. like the the douchiest rich people sport outside of polo. <laughs> if if you if you watch that, you know, where you have these crews of like twelve guys mm. that are constantly, you know, turning those massive cranks and stuff mm. like that. I mean, 
that is operating. The person mm-hmm. at the tiller is operating. He's calling out commands. He's keeping track of 72 things at once. And <clears throat> that is operating. Yeah. But if you're working that into an encounter or a skill challenge or something, and you wanted to call for something like athletics or resilience at an appropriate moment, mm. I mean, yeah, those guys are working their butts off, man. It's physical work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it totally makes sense. Don't, don't limit yourself, but also realize that, you know, again, if <laughs> use what skills appropriate when it's appropriate, yeah. we'll yeah. come to that a bit. Yeah. And just on that, um, I don't know what um, sort of sailing stuff that you guys have in um, in America, but I know that in Australia we have the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, and yeah. it's intense. Like the, they've got to go basically through the Bass Strait, which is one of the most notorious uh, pieces of uh, of water on the planet. And yeah, when they've got to go through that, it's insane. And there are many people who've been washed overboard and died uh, from oh, yeah. this sort of thing. So um, yeah, it's uh, you know something like operating is just clear that that the person who's in charge is obviously the one that uh, that is going to be making the skill check. But if you're if you're doing something like that in a in any sort of setting, uh, that yeah, you'd be making resilience checks and whatever else, but you'd probably be treating it as a as a skill challenge. And you know, my earlier comment about you know yacht racing being like the douchey rich man sport. <laughs> That's a very, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not wrong, but I'm, I'm only right, I'm only right through the lens of America. I need to, I need to check myself there, because when I think about, when I think about Oz, yeah. or I'm sorry, the Netherlands, mm. or, or other countries with a humongously strong national maritime tradition, yeah, I can imagine it's a lot less rich, douchey. Yeah. Here in the states, it's like it's almost entirely the domain of like. You know, Nantucket Island and the Hoity Toit. <laughs> you know, the, um, but yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know, yeah, but I, it, it's dangerous, man. It's like you say, it's dangerous. Mm. What a, God, what a fun encounter that could be, though. Yeah. I don't know if we'll get to it this episode, uh, maybe, maybe in our next episode, but we'll, I know we'll be talking about chases. Mm. Um, so yeah, very, very cool. Mm. Absolutely. But okay, Holy, when people are thinking about this and they want to build a character, they can really do, you know, vehicles well. Mm. You know, we, we got to take a look at species and archetypes, um, and we got to take a look at careers. In in the four published books to date, what are the species that really give a free rank in one of these skills or a leg up in some way? There are absolutely none. <laughs> Not a single one of them in any of the books give us any of these skills. So, uh, so yeah, um, there is a reason for that, I think, uh, and that's that to use these vehicles, it's not something that is innate to your ability, um, to to your society even. Um, I think that for the most part that it really is a case that, uh, you know, these sorts of skills are things that are learned later on, more so in a career. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you would see it fairly frequently in Star Wars. Mm. Um but then, then again, as we said before, you've got a thousand developed species in Star Wars, right? And mm. and some of them are millennia old, and their culture may you know may revolve around space travel. And so, yeah. having like a rank in piloting as a natural facet of your species is sensible. Mm. But uh, I mean, that's again, Star Wars tends to be the exception on a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. But what yeah. about careers? So we've talked about that briefly. So yeah, let's talk about that. So careers. Well, okay. So we got three books to look at because obviously mm. the EPG has no careers in it. Right. Um, 
so from the core rulebook, we've got a few good options. We've got the fighter pilot, duh, um, <laughs> who provides uh, career skill access to both driving and piloting. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, the hacker mm. um, has piloting as its skill. Perhaps even more interestingly, although I can understand it when you think about war zeppelins and dirigibles, <laughs> the mad scientist um, gets operating right. as, as a career uh, skill. Um, and also, of course, operating as a career skill for the starship captain, quite sensibly. Yeah. Now, Realms of Terranoth has none, sadly. <laughs> you know, operating doesn't even get any love. <laughs> so... You know, yeah. I, it's it's. Uh, I mean, come on. There's no sailing ships in Terranoth. Uh, come on, guys. Of course there is. Of course there is. But I mean, obviously, you know, if there were to be any sort of expansions later on down the track, um, if what we were saying before is true, that uh, you know, there may be something that uh, that would include operating, and that would obviously be similar to your starship captain, except that it would obviously be a sailing ship captain. Uh, and things like that. You know, a pirate would obviously have operating um, uh, as as a career skill. So, uh, things like that. But, um, yeah, in Realms of Terranoth, it doesn't have any. But Shadow of the Beanstalk, however, <laughs> has a lot. So, we've oh, got... Understandably. Oh, obviously. Because vehicles are such a big thing on that setting. Um, so, we've got the Bounty Hunter, who has driving. The Courier, which has driving and piloting, which makes a lot of sense. The Roughneck, who uses operating and piloting. And the Tech, who uses uh, operating and piloting. So quite a number there, which is really kind of cool. Now, Holy, a question for you, man. Mm. I mean, Realms of Tyranoth doesn't have skills for vehicles at all. Mm. Does that mean that vehicles can't be used in that setting? Not at all. And I really think that we have to look at the EPG um, so the Explainer Player's Guide, because it gives us stats for chariots and coaches. And I know that even in the the first adventure that was available as a downloadable PDF from FFG, uh, had a uh, a stagecoach that um, the one of the main NPCs was using. And I know that in, in the live play that I did for, for Dice Pool, we had a stagecoach chase. Uh, where the the PCs basically jumped on horses and, and whatever else. So, you know, they can be certainly used. Now, yes, they are horse-drawn carriages, and, and we'll talk about that in our next segment, but riding skill can easily substitute in a driving check to do the same thing as we've mentioned earlier. Uh, and, uh, you know, on in, in that note, the both the scout and the warrior gain riding as a career skill in mm-hmm. Realms of Terranoth. So, okay, species leave us a little lackluster, but I get it. We got some strong careers that are out there to give us good access to some of these these vehicle skills. What about talents? I, I, I will say I was a bit I was a bit pleased to go through all this and, and we're gonna go through them, guys. But when we when we've taken a look at some of our more recent skills, we've had a bit of a dearth of talents related to that skill. Not so with driving, living, <laughs> and operating. <laughs> No, there is an absolute plethora, and uh, you know it's 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 fantastic. So let's go through them. So the first one that we have is daring aviator. Now that's in the core rulebook. It's on page seventy-five, and it's a tier two, um, and it's uh, active incidental. It is a ranked skill, and before you make a driving or piloting check, you can add a number of threat to the result to add an equal number of successes. 
the number may not exceed your ranks in the talent. Really, really handy if uh, you know you don't mind doing a little bit of damage to your car or vessel or whatever it is that you're using. <laughs> I, I love the flavor of this talent. Whenever mm. flavor can be represented through such good mechanics, yep. I absolutely love it. And yeah, it's literally, literally, you're pulling it off, but you're tearing the hell out of your vehicle. <laughs> I'm really sort of like picturing um, Han Solo and uh, Kira uh, in Solo where uh, they've gone through that small little, <laughs> there's an alleyway that it, the, his speeder just doesn't quite fit. <laughs> and he's obviously done, well, I'm going to make it to the other end, no problem. Yeah, but obviously a few too many threat were uh, were added to that check. So, uh, so yeah. <laughs> then we have uh, next up from the core rule book, page 77, uh, tier three talent, Barrel Roll, mm. which was never officially put into the Star Wars rules, mm. but was created by community members. I think Phil was the first one to actually create it as not a talent, but like an additional action yep. that really informed a lot of this. Uh, mm. So I, I absolutely love it. Uh, when and, and this works a bit differently, but when when piloting a starfighter or an airplane of silhouette three or less, when your vehicle suffers a hit from a range combat check after the damage is calculated, but before armor is applied, your character can have their vehicle suffer three system strain to reduce the damage suffered by a number equal to your ranks in piloting. So. If you've got three or more ranks in piloting, this becomes a very positive sum game. You can take three system strain to, you know, avoid four or five potentially damage uh, mm. to your ship, mm. which I, I think is, is is pretty darn cool. Yeah. And even if you only have a rank or two in piloting, sometimes avoiding one or two damage can keep your ship going when it otherwise would not be, yeah. you know, for the cost of some system strain. Mm. So very handy talent. Absolutely. One of the things that I love about this talent is that it follows the same rule process as parry. So you're not having to learn an entire new sort of way of doing things. So um, so it's really kind of cool there. Now, the next one is Full Throttle. Now, it's also in the core rulebook, page 78, and it's another tier three. It's an active activation, and uh, it's non-ranked. Uh, when driving or flying, you can make a hard piloting or driving check. If successful, the top speed of your vehicle increases by one to a maximum of five for a number of rounds, equal to your character's cunning. Which is really, really handy. <laughs> yes, it is. Especially as we'll get to in the next segment when we mm. start talking about the way vehicle movement occurs in the system with force movement. Mm. It's it's a really great option. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then we come to the last talent that is, you know, vehicle related in the core rulebook. Um, it's a tier four found on page 80. Uh, passive talent. It is ranked. Um, and that is the classic all the way from Star Wars defensive driving mm. very simple increase the defense of any vehicle your character pilots by one per rank of defensive driving hey, super easy super easy and a very very useful talent especially if you've got a vehicle that doesn't have any defense at all yeah. <laughs> so yeah very very handy so our next talent uh is hand on a throttle and it comes from shadow of the beanstalk and there are so many in in this book, it's not funny, but that's obviously based on the setting. So it's on page 45. Uh, it is a tier one talent. Uh, it's an active incidental and it's non-ranked. And once per round while driving or piloting a vehicle, you can use this talent to increase or decrease the vehicle's speed by one to a minimum of zero or a max of the vehicle's max speed. So what this is basically saying... Um, <laughs> you know, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> 
So, uh, so yeah, th- this is uh, it's fantastic because it's an incidental, and we'll talk more about uh, what sort of actions and, and whatever else you can do it around. Um, but to be able to increase that vehicle speed or decrease it for an incidental, that's amazing. <laughs> so, without obviously causing some system strain, and and we'll get onto that in a tick. But um, yeah, very very handy. And Huli, this is talent. It costs five XP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like hand on the throttle is so good. It is so good when you understand how force movement and movement works in vehicle combat in mm-hmm. Genesis. Mm-hmm. It is such a good freaking talent. Mm. Oh my, oh my, oh my. <laughs> Next up, uh, also from Shadow of the Beanstalk, we have another tier one, uh, page 45. It's not a like direct vehicle talent. It's just worth noting because of the skills associated with it. And that's a union member. Um, it's a passive talent, non-ranked. It's one of the myriad styles of this talent they have in Shadow of the Beanstalk where it, it kind of gives your character a background. Okay, so it's like, hey, you're a union member. Um, so you can choose to gain athletics, mechanics, or operating <laughs> as a career skill. Yep. And, and in addition, of course, like those talents do, you also get a small favor from a member of uh, a specific organization. In this case, um, humanity, labor, or human first. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. So if you're know if you if you're playing in, in, in Android, if you're playing in the setting and you want operating as a career skill, 5 XP, you can get it. Mm. Uh, the next one is Determined Driver, and it's on page 48 so of Shadow of the Beanstalk, and it's a tier two. It's an active incidental. These are always good fun. Uh, it's a non-ranked talent, and you can spend a story point to use this talent, having your character heal system strain on a vehicle they are currently driving, piloting, or operating, equal to their ranks in driving, piloting, or operating, and it must be the skill used to direct the vehicle. This is insane. <laughs> and if, we'll talk more about this later on. But For 10 FB, this is stupid insane. I understand it's story point driven, but still. Yeah, yeah. And uh, removing system strain is something that is vital if you want to do crazy things in your vehicle and keep on doing crazy things in your vehicle. So, uh, because there aren't too many ways to recover that in the first place. So, yeah, really, really good talent. Okay, and so speaking of doing crazy things (laughs) in your vehicle, the last talent... Um, so obviously the core rulebook introduced the classic gem from Star Wars, defensive driving. Mm-hmm. Shadow of the Beanstalk, page 51, brings us the tier four talent. Mm. And when you, you, when you listen to it, you'll understand why. <laughs> of offensive driving. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is active talent. It is an action to use it. It is non-ranked. When driving or piloting a vehicle, your character may use this talent to select one other vehicle within medium range and make an opposed driving or piloting versus driving or piloting check, um, depending on the skill your character and your opponent are, are using to control their vehicles. Targeting the other vehicle's driver or pilot. So you with me so far? You mm-hmm. say, I choose a vehicle and I'm going to make an opposed check targeting them, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So, so my driving or piloting opposed by their driving or piloting, depending on the vehicle choice, right? Yep. If you are successful in the check, you pull up the vehicle crit table <laughs> And you roll twice. Mm-hmm. They take those two results and you choose one of the critical hits to apply to your opponent's vehicle and the other to apply to your vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> this is, so literally, this is a forced collision. You, yeah. are, you are ramming your vehicle into your opponent's vehicle. 
um, and you're both going to suffer crits, but you get to pick which one after the roll. Um, additionally, if you manage to roll a triumph, you can add t- plus 20 to the crit result um, of one of the results. Again, your choice. <laughs> um, and conversely, um, if you happen to roll a despair, the GM can spend it to add plus 20 to both results. <laughs> uh, which is which is fun. Yeah. This is this is I love this talent. It is so flavorful. Mm. It it can be insanely powerful, which is why it's a tier four. Yeah. But oh my God. Oh my God. And there's there's no there's no there's no limit on using this. It's just an action. Mm. There's there's no strain cost. There's no system strain cost. There's no story point cost. You just ram your vehicle into someone else's <laughs> in a controlled fashion. Like unbelievable. Yep. <laughs> I love it. It's great. <laughs> uh, dear. All right. So we've talked about talents and there, as we said before, there is a plethora of them. So let's talk about gear. What sort of gear have we got that can affect driving? Chris? Nothing. Zip. <laughs> nada. Zilch. Zero. Uh, honestly, outside the vehicles themselves, there is no like personal scale equipment to assist or even work in conjunction uh, with driving, piloting, or operating. Yeah. Um, you've got ancillary stuff like spacesuits, of course, you know, mm. which might matter if you're a pilot in space, but yeah. they don't relate to the skills themselves that we are discussing in any form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, listen, there's, as I said, there's tons of vehicles and, and planetary scale weaponry, <laughs> uh, but but honestly, that's about four shows worth of content, and you all can read, so I don't really want to go into all of that. Um, but but yeah, surprisingly, no gear. Mm. We might talk about that a little bit later. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he says with his pinky to his mouth. <laughs> All right. Now, the, the thing which obviously goes on in any sort of chase or, or, or any sort of combat involving vehicles, you're obviously going to be making checks and rolling advantages, triumphs, threats, and despairs. So let's talk about some of unique ways of, of doing that and some of the ways that they sort of talk about in in the rules themselves, whether it be either Star Wars or Genesis. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like like steering checks, uh, which is the colloquial term, up, as we'll come to in a bit, we're using for these types of vehicle checks, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it be driving, piloting, operating. Yep. Steering checks are, are almost always made, almost always, in structured encounters, mm-hmm. Okay usually when combat is also taking place. And and this is actually a very helpful thing because it means that combative effects and capability can easily inform how we apply advantage, triumph, threat, and despair. This means that those wonderful suggestions in the core rulebook of, hey, here's some great suggestions when you're in combat of how to spend advantage, triumph, threat, and despair can also, for the most part, be equally applied to the corresponding vehicle steering checks and if you roll those results. Mm. Now, in Star Wars, we obviously have an entire table dedicated to it. And the reason is is that starships play a big part in that setting. And so they've obviously gone to that next level. Genesis obviously has to take a a more uh, generic approach, hence the reason why it's the way that it is, that it sort of just suggests that you use the regular advantage, triumph, threat, and despair table. In this sort of regard, you know, advantages can be used to uh, to push boost die to future checks um, to uh, to other people using gunnery on ships or even repairs to a certain extent. You know, you can add narrative elements such as terrain and obstacles to add setback die to your opponent's checks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
One thing, though, that it can't do, and a lot of people have asked me this question, that in the uh, the table for using advantage tribes, threats, and despairs, it says that you can use advantage to recover strain. It doesn't say system strain. So basically, you can't use advantages to recover system strain on your vehicle. As I said before, recovering system strain is something which is really, really hard to do. And it has to be managed through uh, mechanics checks by other people who might be on board the vehicle or yourself if you're in a, uh, a fighter pilot that uh, is alone in, in their own ship. So it really is the case that that is the only way to do it. And we mentioned the other talent before. As far as Star Wars goes, because I know that a number of people will obviously be listening to this episode because, you know, vehicle combat still occurs in the Star Wars setting and we kind of are suggesting that uh, you should be using uh, this system as opposed to the the system from Star Wars, is that uh, the only one that I'm aware of that does something similar to this um, is Jetpack Mastery, um, and that's from Collapse of the Republic, and it only applies to jetpacks. So it yeah. is something which is really, really rare to, uh, to recover system strains. It's something to keep in mind when it comes to advantages that you can't do it that way. Yeah. And, you know, these are these are very good points. I mean, so for, on the whole, you can use the combat level effects for advantage, but not to recover system strain. Very important. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for triumph. Uh, if you roll a triumph, just like on a combat check, a triumph can change the entire narrative of the encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, this means that, you know, encounter level hazards could be totally resolved, for example, um, or not affect you. Um, perhaps you can even change the environment to suit you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, push you know, upgrades and other things to the next checks to go, uh, you know, um, uh, getting, you know, free maneuvers, things like that. All the, all the good classic stuff you can do with Triumph in combat, you can do with, you know, steering handling checks as well. Yep. Now, th- with threats, you can pretty much do the complete opposite of what we've just talked about with advantages. You can you can push setback die to for future checks. Um, and the one thing that you can do that you can't do with advantages in reverse um, is that you can actually cause system strain uh, using threat for a one-on-one basis. So if you're suddenly running out of ideas, that may be a way that you can affect a, uh, a vehicle. The one thing to take into consideration when you're GMing, though, is that system strain is normally lower than hold threshold. And we'll talk about those terms later on. But you've just got to be really careful, especially when you're talking about smaller vehicles, is that they don't have a lot of system strain. So just be mindful of that because you just don't want to be a bit of a douche as a GM and always be hitting the system strain because then players are just going to go, I'm not going to be using this, these vehicles anymore. And that really removes an entire fantastic element from your game. So, uh, so yeah. This is, this is one of the more well, – this is one of the things I, I wish wasn't codified. As a GM, you I, I got I to echo Hooli's advice. You really need to be cautious here. Mm. You know, yes, you can use threat to to inflict system strain. However, as Hooli said, you need to be extremely judicious about it. Mm. As a GM, personally, I can't recall when I have ever done it for single person vehicles mm. for for two reasons. One, because look, look, when you do it for a large vehicle, one, it's got a larger strain threshold to handle it. Okay. Mm. Two, you typically have several party members on board that vehicle, one of whom can take the time and the actions to recover that strain. Yep. If you're dealing with, you know, 
automobiles, motorcycles, uh, snub fighters, okay, where you've got one pilot, their actions are typically going to be spent, you know, shooting <laughs> um, and, and trying to survive and, and drive the ship. And so forcing that action economy into system strain recovery through mechanics um, is, is a little cheap. It makes it less fun. Yep. So I, w- I would seriously echo Hooli and caution against this specifically for single person vehicles, especially I should say for single person vehicles, mm. um, make it a rare thing that you do this at all. Yeah. So unless you've got an R2 unit and they're great for that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you've got other crew members. Exactly. Who can handle, right? Exactly. Exactly. That, exactly. That's the distinction. Mm. But what about despairs, Chris? Oh man. Well, I'm just, again, like combat, you can use them the same way despairs can be used, but with vehicles, you have another special thing you can do with despairs mm. and that is collisions. <laughs> um, whether you're driving down a street, flying through a crowded skyway or rocketing about an asteroid belt. You roll that despair, you done hit something, son. You done hit it, it's time to be rolling on that crit table. (laughs) Um, I absolutely love uh, despairs uh, for vehicles because, you know, uh, collision is an easy thing to do. And Mm. it can be minor, it can be devastating. Mm. It's great. Yeah. So what other things can can these things be used for? I know that, uh, that you mentioned sort of briefly one before. Uh, where you talk about changing the environment to suit you. This is a great way of, uh, of uh, for people who don't necessarily understand what we're talking about. So if you're going through, let's say that you're doing a chase uh, through city streets, with a triumph perhaps, you could uh, suddenly you're in the outer suburbs where there's not necessarily as much traffic. You may have other things to contend with, such as kids on bikes and, and uh, you know, garbage trucks and whatever else. But, um, you know, th- there's things that you can do to suit you better. So it may be that you get a little bit closer to your hideout. Um, it may be the case that you're just in an open country road. Um, obviously, changing the environment is one way of doing it. And you can also use despairs in that regard as well so that they suit what the GM needs more such as suddenly they come up to a traffic jam, you know, increasing the difficulty um, of, uh, of making their way around that sort of thing. So any other suggestions? Oh, yeah. Like when you talk about terrain management, this is some of the most cinematic fun you'll ever see. Yeah. Uh, it's very easy to do this in space, but I'll, I'll keep it ground level. Okay, so how many times have you watched uh, a Fast and Furious movie or a <laughs> transporter movie or whatever um, or, or the Italian job yep. and they're racing through European tiny streets and some car plows into like a vegetable vendor and, <laughs> and like, you know, or like, or like a, there, there always seems to be roadside markets like everywhere. <laughs> like there's, there's hundreds of people with a roadside market and they're selling stuff and yeah, got a better put on it. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, the car crashes into it and crap goes flying everywhere. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it invariably takes out one of the vehicles that's chasing you. Right. Right. Or, 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 you know, paint cans get splattered over the windshield of another vehicle <laughs> that's chasing you. And they're like, oh, I can't see. And then they crash into something. Right. Yep. This is a great example of, of using triumph. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I absolutely love it. It's like, yeah, I want to crash into this. And you can, you can give yourself instant cover or concealment, mm-hmm. um, especially if somebody's shooting at you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I had a, I had, it was actually a Star Wars game once where we had a triumph rolled. It was a, 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 a freighter and they were desperately trying to escape and, um, get past, uh, sort of this, uh, orbital junkyard they were in. 
mm-hmm. and, and get clear of it so they could put in their astrogation coordinates and get the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had at least six snub fighters on their tail firing at them. <laughs> and the snubs had like like they were heavily kitted. They had concussion missiles. Like it was nuts. Okay. Mm-hmm. And one of my guys rolled a triumph actually on a piloting check. And he was like, God, what, what do I want? What, what do you do? What do I want to do with the triumph? He goes, okay, this sounds crazy, but we're, we're in this ship junkyard. I want to graze one of the ships underbellies with my ship. And I want to hit like a, a fuel tank or something. And I want to, I want to in zero gravity, I want to spray a mist of fuel or foam or <laughs> atmosphere, or something all throughout to provide uh, concealment, Yeah, you know, in space. Mm. And I was like, that's a freaking brilliant. I love it. And, and so they narrated it out and they hit like an old oxygen, uh, you know, fuel cell and it started spewing liquid oxygen everywhere. Right. And it created awesome concealment. It created heavy concealment, almost mm. like smoke in space, mm. um, to the point that it was like two setbacks for other guys attacking them. It, it literally saved their bacon. Yeah. So yeah, there's all kinds of fun stuff you can do, but, mm. and, and even, even more so. And I think comes a lot more naturally because again, as we said, these kinds of checks are usually handled in structured encounters and combat encounters anyway. Mm. And those of us that are familiar with the system and are familiar also with Star Wars before it, we know how to handle this stuff in combat yeah. encounters. Yeah. We, we know. We mm. know. But yeah, just basically be creative. Um, and whether it be uh, despair, suddenly a truck comes out of the way, but they've rolled a triumph and suddenly their car is actually small enough to get underneath. Um, <laughs> how many times has that happened in uh, Fast and Furious? But, uh, exactly, but yeah. <laughs> so all that sort of stuff. So, right. so yeah, just be creative uh, when you're doing this and, and you'll be fine. But what about non-standard, non-raw ways of using driving, piloting and operating, Chris? What, um, what's some options there? Well, okay. So interestingly, you guys are going to find that our suggestions here are a little less open than usual for die casting segments on skills. Why? <laughs> well, we said, we said why. Mm. <laughs> um, because driving, piloting, and operating are what are often called hard skills, okay? In other words, they are part of a small subset of skills called hard skills. Some people refer to them as hard skills, meaning they stand alongside combat skills and they stand alongside magic skills, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. Magic, combat, and uh, steering or handling skills for vehicles are, are all they're, they're all used like combat skills. They're used very distinctly for specifically detailed and specifically heavily fleshed out tasks and actions that have entire chapters devoted to them in the books, mm. okay, mm-hmm. that occur within a structured encounter, almost always combat, okay? And mm-hmm. as a result, you really don't want other skills to replicate what they can do. Mm-hmm. And when you have that axiom in place, you really don't want them replicating what other skills can do either. Mm. They, they have their place. So as a result, when it comes to non-standard uses, we really only have one suggestion for you guys, but I think it's a valid one. Yeah. And I think um, the, the only one that we're talking about is vehicle knowledge. Now, while this is, is typically the domain of, of a knowledge skill, uh, a good GM would probably have little issue at all with uh, using driving or piloting checks to to know about specific cars or, or starfighters. You know, similarly how combat checks can be used to know about weapons uh, when they're being purchased and which one is better than the next one. You know, if you've got somebody that's basically going, you know, hey, bro, uh, that's a nice TZ-55, uh, Kappa Z power regulator on that engine there. Well, you know, what does that give you? 
that sort of thing, and that's the worst version of an accent that I've ever done. But anyway, <laughs> I I love it. But no, I, I love it. This is the idea, like like you know, gearheads, drivers, pilots, they can all talk shop. Okay, yeah, exactly. Using the relevant skill, mm-hmm. and and you know, if, if, if as a GM, if a player was to be like, yeah, can I could I make a you know, if if I'm if I'm, if I'm hanging out with if I'm a if I'm a cop. And I'm trying to infiltrate us. Oh God, we're really leaning on the Fast and Furious, aren't we? Um, <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> but if I'm a cop and I'm trying to infiltrate a street racing group, and I, I suggested that I want to use my driving skill to talk about the engine or the you know the lift or whatever, I don't know anything about you know cars. Um, <laughs> you know the NOS, the NOS. Okay. Um, you know, and 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 a player said that to me as a GM, I'd be like, yeah, totally, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's that's really all we're saying here, guys. Mm, absolutely. And look, you could. And and I'm probably I'm going outside of show notes here, but if you really wanted to, you could kind of almost use knowledge, um, or even sort of uh, if you're trying to talk to someone, and this is sort of outside of the extreme, I guess, that if you had to make small talk with someone to, you know, perhaps it was part of a skill challenge, or you really want to let your friend duck in out the back, and the person who's there. You know, you could be trying to talk to them about vehicles. So you might use, you know, one of the, the, or one of the control skills with presence, perhaps. Um, you know, that's, that's a really different way. And I think that if a player came to me, I'd say, sure, but that's going to be difficult. And, uh, you know, you'd be upgrading the, the difficulty a bit, but you might be using more presence based as they're trying to portray what they know. And they might go, uh, but I don't have much in presence. Well, Good luck. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, but um, yeah, that, that's just another suggestion that I've had just off the top of my head. Now, the last thing to consider when we talk about non-standard, and in this case, now we finally get to non-raw uses of these skills. Okay, Forgians, blacksmiths, <laughs> whatever we're going to call you. Normally, <laughs> when we talk skills, we like to beef up skills a bit more with some non-raw talents. But honestly, Hooli. Mm. There's already a lot of really good driving and piloting <laughs> talents out there across a couple of different books at this point. Yeah. Um, but do you know what's missing? What we said before is gear. <laughs> gear. So we thought for you guys in this episode, we might take a different tactic this time around and hook you up with a few pieces of homebrewed equipment specifically designed to mesh with those three handling skills um, to to aid the drivers, the pilots, and the captains out there. Mm. So very excited, um, Huli. What, what what do we got? What new gear can we get on the playtest table for our <laughs> listeners? All right. So the first one that we have is pilots' gloves, uh, and we've said these luxurious leather gloves are custom fitted to their owner, like a second skin. Crafted of the most supple materials, they not only give better grip on the controls but make a style statement all their own. While wearing a set of pilot's gloves, your character adds an automatic advantage to the results of any driving or piloting check they make. Uh, This piece of gear can be used in any weird war, steampunk, modern, sci-fi, or space opera setting. We've said that it uh, doesn't have an encumbrance value. Uh, it has a price of $400 credits, whatever you want to call it. Money. Money. <laughs> and a rarity of four. Yeah. And it was it was interesting. I mean, obviously, the price is a bit steep, but this is a luxury item. Mm. Um, and it provides a pretty stout permanent benefit for being worn. 
Yeah. You know, and, and consequently, because it's more of a luxury item that's custom fitted, that's I think that's reflected in the rarity as well. Yeah. But I don't know. I thought this was a pretty handy little uh, thing that a, a pilot or a driver might want to have in their in their glove box. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Now, the next piece of gear is absolutely amazing. Um, so, Chris, do you want to go through that with us? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I love this one. Um, so uh, we, we had trouble settling on a name for this. We, we either we either were going to call it the Hula Girl. <laughs> or fluffy dice. Um, basically, this this campy dashboard icon need not be an actual hula girl or fluffy dice. It could be a memento from a travel stop or a past mission. It is a small, cheap-looking piece of kitschy paraphernalia that is a memento to your character, which they can affix to their vehicle's dash or control panel once per session. Your character can spend a story point to re-roll any piloting or driving check they make in a vehicle to which they have attached their hula girl. The hula girl is destroyed as a part of the re-roll, which the player must narrate appropriately. And the results of the re-roll must be accepted, even if they are worse than the original results. And then, of course, this piece of gear can be used in any weird war, steampunk, modern sci-fi, or space opera setting. Um, uh, it has an encumbrance of zero. Obviously, it's tiny. Rarity of two, pretty easy to find and come across, mm -hmm. but a price of 100. Um, while as the actual kitschy memento would probably never cost 100, you know, <laughs> cash, mm. um, because of the benefit it provides and being a one time use item, yeah, it costs 100. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this? I was kind of, I was kind of tickled by this one. Look, I have. <laughs> Look, I don't know if it's a big thing in the States, but I know here for years during the 70s, uh, you know, fluffy dice were always a huge big thing, especially with, um, you know, the, the rev heads, uh, that that would be sort of a, a bit of an icon thing. And, uh, you know, it's got to the point where the, it's actually an offence in, in this state anyway to uh, to have something hanging off the uh, uh, off the rear vision mirror. Um, so, <laughs> so that's how bad it got uh, with the sort of stuff that the people were, were putting on. But, you know, we, we see movies all the time where they've got the... Uh, the dog with the uh, the bouncing head, uh, which is yes. on the dash and stuff like that. So uh, you know, I think that it's 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 a nice little sort of tip of the hat to to that sort of theme. Um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. Oh, I like the idea of a reroll, and for only a hundred dollars um, monies, I think that it's great. Um, I also love the fact that that it's just obviously it's one time it's destroyed in the process, but the player has to narrate how you know <laughs> you, know, you you pull off that amazing you know hairpin turn, but you know uh, your your hula girl falls off the dash and and, and crashes and and uh, flies out the window, right? Yeah. Um, you know, or or you you know you use your dice and wrap them around the e brake and do a uh, you know to do a pull for the hairpin turn, and you're <laughs> your nylon strap snaps or something like that. You Absolutely, know I mean? yeah. You know, it, it, I don't know. It's, it's just fun. It's, it's just very fun. cool. Look, I could also see like a prestige version of this as well, that um, if in the next check they perform, uh, as part of that check, that they get a triumph, that it that triumph can be spent to replenish it, basically. Um, there's another piece of gear that does something similar to that as well. Uh, that uh, so obviously it'll be a lot more expensive, but uh, that would explain something like I don't know uh, a set of gold dice hanging off the uh, the <laughs> off the top of the cockpit in the Falcon, for example, or something like yep. that. Yep. Yep. 
And our last piece of gear, which is interesting, uh, is the rangefinder. Now, this contraption looks similar to a massive astrolab, but consists of lens attachments, a wind speed gauge or similar device, and other rangefinding tools that can aid uh, a savvy captain. Now, while a rangefinder is aboard the deck of a ship, any operating checks made aboard the ship gain an automatic advantage to their results. Additionally, each round, one gunnery check made aboard the ship adds an automatic success to the result. Because we can't forget operating. <laughs> so, uh, so can't forget operating. <laughs> now, this is this is well, we'll come to it. But this is a pretty this is pretty powerful. Mm, absolutely. And uh, this piece of gear can be used in any fantasy, weird ward, steampunk, uh, modern, sci-fi, or space opera setting. Um, it's got an encumbrance of three, so uh, it does take up a bit of space. Uh, it has a rarity of six, so you're not going to find it everywhere. Uh, and it also has a price of 1,000 monies. Because, yeah, because it, <laughs> because it, 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 it's got a pretty strong benefit. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- this is one of those things that, you know, you know, the advantage in operating checks, that's nice. But once around getting an automatic success to a single gunnery check, mm. you know, which which makes sense. It's a range finder. Right. Right. And it can be used to to assist one shot. That's that's potent. So it, it, it really needs to be reflected in the price, mm. which it is. Mm. So, yeah. So that's all of those wonderful items. And I, I think they really add something to the game as well. So, um, you know, that. That might open the door to someone who might be wanting to add some additional gear to uh, to assist with these sorts of checks. So, um, so yeah, I think that they're really cool. But we want you guys to play test them, get them on your table. You guys can find uh, these new pieces of equipment, this new gear, um, available in this episode's download file uh, directly at forgegenesis.com. Mm. Very nice. All right, Huli. Mm. I it is time to continue this vehicular conversation <laughs> yes. and uh, pump the bellows and heat things up as we get into the furnace. The furnace. And welcome to the furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role playing game. Now, nothing is more thrilling than a chase through the deep forests of a long forgotten planet racing along in a minecart rails deep underground or driving through high-rise building like we used to do as kids with toy cars. And yes, I'm looking at you, Fast and Furious, that we've referred to a number of times already. <laughs> Whichever number that is. Um, yeah, flying tanks, really? Anyway. Uh, really? I'm Black Superman. What? <laughs> I do love those movies, but <laughs> that's a side note. Transport is better, but I still love those movies. Anyway, (laughs) vehicles play an exciting part in our imaginations and always have, and especially the stories we're telling. Role-playing games are the mirror to those tales, and so the game rules covering the use of vehicles must be equally engaging. So we want to ensure that GMs and players alike can use the vehicle rules with ease. We want you to gain a better understanding of how these rules work how to use them best in your game sessions, and how to also present them, uh, not just when you're educating players at the table, but most importantly, when you're creating new products for the foundry. And so many of us playing Genesis cut our teeth in Star Wars, Huli, but mm. 
And I know we're going to come to this very specifically. One of the big reasons we wanted to get into this lengthy discussion over several episodes is to also highlight the radical differences mm. between Star Wars vehicle rules and Genesis vehicle rules. And I will tell you right now, Star Wars, I love you. You, you know, you're my bae. <laughs> but new hotness over here. I will never use the Star Wars vehicle rules again. I will be using the Genesis vehicle rules in my Star Wars games. Do you understand me? <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about why. So, Yeah, absolutely. And, and to that end, we've decided to dedicate an entire episode. In fact, we're going to do several uh, to learning the nuts and bolts, so to speak, of using vehicles in the Genesis role-playing game. So put your foot on the clutch, idle the engine, and join us as we take a slow drive in through the Genesis vehicle rules. Now, before starting this process, Huli, as we do, <laughs> we like to set down the groundwork for the rules. We did it with magic. We need to continue that process for vehicles, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And so for those following on at home, you can open up your Genesis core rulebooks to page 220. Here in the optional rules sections, you'll find the vehicle rules. So the first question is, why are they optional? Well, look, not every game has vehicles in them. Realms of Terranoth, for example, it's a fantasy setting. And unless you have steampunk or flying ships in your Terranoth setting, you're likely not going to use the, uh, the vehicle rules at all. But wait, I hear you say, what about carts and what about chariots? And we mentioned that before. Well, it's a good point. However, carts are normally pulled along by horses and or oxen or other some sort of beast of burden. These animals use the rules for mounted combat, which is shown on page 83 of Realms of Terranoth, which cover how mounted combat works. So, Chris, would you like to go through and just explain how that works, just so that we can compare the two? Yeah, I think it's a good aside. Um, and honestly, as, as Huli said, on, on page 83, Realms of Terranoth, under the mounted combat, a mount operates using the riding skills, um, as we discussed earlier in the episode. And as a maneuver, a character can make the mount move two maneuvers worth of its movement. That's two maneuvers, not range bands. That's important to remember later when we start talking about vehicle movement. But I mean, that, that's honestly, Huli, the key differentiator between mounted combat and vehicle combat. Yeah. So basically, mounts work differently to vehicles. Now, you can change mounts to work um, in, uh, I guess, uh, character scale or vehicle scale, sorry, if you wish. And though the, there are rules which are out there. Um, if you can get a copy of Age of Rebellion in the, uh, the book for the Aces career, which is called Stay on Target. They're in there, and um, it has a whole heap of rules about uh, RNS codes so that you can, you know, if you're creating creatures and stuff like that, that you can make it more difficult to ride them because they're not, you know, they're not supposed to be ridden uh, and things like that. It, it is a really good set of rules, but basically they aren't necessary, in my opinion, since in Genesis, characters and vehicles are going to operate in the same space anyway, and that was really a design strategy when it came to the vehicle rules to make sure that everything's operating on the same level as opposed to what we see in star wars yep yep and it's a it's it's a big differentiator there that can make for much more cinematic play mm. now like let's let's talk about this though okay because in in star wars rpg Huli, mm. vehicles operate on a similarly named range bands but as you allude to in their own scale 
which which basically made using vehicles and characters in that system combined in one encounter a little confusing. Mm. So I really want to dive into this, Huli, but I think we should really start by talking about range bands and educating those unfamiliar before we get too far into it, yes? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to range bands, range bands are obviously, you know, a, a combat mechanic, I guess, but we do need to talk about that because it, they play a really big part when we start talking about vehicles. Um, so in Genesis, we've got six range bands, which is a little bit different than what we see in Star Wars. In Star Wars, we only have five. In Genesis, we have Engaged, which is a special type of range band, and we'll get on to that in a tick. We have Short, Medium, Long, Extreme, which are the all of the, the range bands that we saw in Star Wars. And then we have a new range band, which is called Strategic. Now, uh, to describe the, the six of them, if you're engaged, if you were whispering to someone, they would be able to hear you. And this is how I like to describe it when, when talking about this sort of stuff. Short range is that I can talk to you fine and, and you can hear me. Uh, medium, I have to raise my voice a little bit and you can still hear me. Long range, I have to be yelling at you for you to hear me. Uh, extreme range, I might need a megaphone or a PA system to for you to be able to hear me. And strategic range is completely outside of normal hearing. So engaged is really the only odd man out here and it's, uh, it's more of a range band inside a range band. So to interact with someone or, or something, you need to move into engaged range. So moving from short range to engaged range is a maneuver for a character. And as we'll learn later, is also a maneuver for a vehicle called a reposition. But we'll get on to that later. And to really highlight the difference here as what Huli's gone through compared to Star Wars, the really fun thing about Genesis, you know, compared to Star Wars is that vehicles now operate within the same range bands that characters actually use. Mm. You know, and, and, and as we mentioned earlier, in Star Wars, vehicle combat shared the terms short, medium, long, extreme range, but they were on a completely different scale. The, the only difference was that for, for vehicles, there was no such thing as engaged range. Instead, you had this special vehicle range in Star Wars called close range. <laughs> but like close range for vehicles in Star Wars was like the equivalent of extreme range and character scale. And it was... It was just it was just very confusing, <laughs> you know, and, and, and really yeah. it's like like it, it put a hard line boundary in. Mm. If you were going to in Star Wars and using those rules, if you're going to have vehicle combat, it's vehicles only and vehicle range. Mm. That's it. Mm. You know, no, you, no, no personal uh, combat included in that. Yeah. So. A number of times that I've had uh, gaming sessions and I'm sure that you have as well, Chris, where you've had people on speeder bikes and things like that when we're talking yeah. about Star Wars. And their vehicles, so they operate on this extra large range band. Well, if people are trying to sort of like move in amongst each other and trying to like ram each other and, and um, you know, jump from speeder to speeder, you're talking about how do you deal with that? Because if you've got two vehicles that are a medium range at each other, well, that's beyond extreme. So you can't have these fun times where you're jumping from vehicle to vehicle. So... Putting them all on the same scale makes it uh, in the same space, I guess, is makes it so much easier to uh, to incorporate those sorts of encounters, which are going to be fun in your campaigns. Okay, so that's range bands. Now let's talk a little bit about movement, and this is vastly different again, and likely the biggest change between the systems. Oh, you're not wrong. In fact, this is my this is my favorite change. Mm. 
like hands down, this is what I think I love the most. Well, okay, maybe, maybe a toss up, but <laughs> I really love this. Okay, in Star Wars, a vehicle could effectively stay in one spot, just flying around within that range band. Hmm. Okay, in Genesis, you cannot do that while your vehicle is in motion. Yep. In, and I actually love this. It actually it adds a new wrinkle to things and makes things a lot easier on pilots, but we'll come to that. Mm-hmm. In this system, in Genesis, vehicles have what's called forced movement, okay, which Star Wars did not have. This value is based on the speed of the vehicle, and it requires you to move a certain distance while you are at that speed. Speed also affects other things, too, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. And, and for those of you who delved into Genesis vehicle combat compared to Star Wars, you will find, as I said, this one little thing is a huge benefit that makes vehicle combat so much more interesting, so much more dynamic. I, okay, we'll, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. We'll come to that. <laughs> um, for now, just know that this is the basics of, of range bands and movement. Yeah. And, 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 and the speed of your vehicle will cause your vehicle to have forced movement through these different range bands every round. Hmm. Now, one of the things that um, you'll probably sort of realize uh, as you're listening to this is that vehicles and the vehicle rules, it's really, really difficult to to work out where to start because it really is the case of which came first, chicken or the egg. You know, we've got, uh, you know, range bands, we've got movement, and then we've got the vehicle stats themselves. So hopefully the way that we're sort of explaining this does make sense. Now, as we've said, uh, talking about range bands, I'm sure most of you know about those range bands already, but they do play this really important part in vehicles and vehicle combat that we need to make sure that you were covered off on. So that's the reason why we've gone through that. All right, Chris, now to the let's... Let's dive right in, or should that be drive right in? Um, to uh, <laughs> I had to get a pun in there somewhere. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, let's get into the good stuff. You know, what is a vehicle and how do they work? <laughs> okay, I think it's important first to talk about a little bit of terminology hmm. um, because we're gonna we're gonna we've 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 been dancing around some terminology throughout this episode so far yep. let's just go ahead and do a quick definition so everyone's on the same page with this yeah um, the first is the term steering the term steering in Genesis replaces the term piloting that you would find in Star Wars hmm. since not all vehicles in a generic game use a character's piloting skill it could be driving. It could be operating, like we said. Okay, <laughs> so as a result, the term steering means to 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 pilot or drive or operate the vehicle. Okay, and we will use throughout this episode the generic term steering or to steer the vehicle. Now, that's one thi- one interesting thing to to realize with that: the term steering was not originally used in the Genesis core rules. This is something yeah. that was modified um, when the latest version of the errata came out. And that's because they realized that uh, piloting doesn't refer to everything. So uh, steering is definitely more of a generic word. Uh, so that's what we're going to be using throughout this whole process. The next one is planetary scale. Now, I know we mentioned that, that characters and vehicles operate in the same space. But just due to sheer scale of, uh, of a vehicle it needs to be you know, represented in some way. So this is where we have the 10 to 1 rule. And we'll mm-hmm. refer to this a couple of times. So what it means is that one planetary scale damage. So 
when a weapon has a damage of uh, of one, it equates to 10 wounds in character scale. So most weapons are going to have damage in the vicinity of fours, fives, and sixes when it comes to, to vehicles, which means that you're looking at 40, 50, and 60 wounds in character scale. <laughs> so, so if you're going to be starting shooting things with, uh, with planetary scale weapons, just be aware that you're probably not going to have much of a character anymore. And they talk about that uh, in the rules as well, that when something of the size of a vehicle is shooting at someone, that you are going to be adding plus 50 to any critical hits that are caused. Now, chances are, with that much damage, that you are going to cause someone to go well and truly over their wound threshold, if not kill them outright. But as we've pointed out in the past, that the rules specifically state that you don't die until you roll on the critical table and you go over that magic mark of, what is it, 145 or something like that. So, yeah, or or if, if, you, if you play this way, double your wound threshold. Yeah. And if you're playing double your wound threshold, you, you're toast, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and no amount of soak is going to save you, no matter what. It's also worth noting, Huli, this tender mm. wound doesn't just apply to damage, okay? True. Um, it, it also applies to wound threshold and or hole trauma, okay? True, yep. As well as, uh, as we'll get to in a bit, um, vehicle soak, which is called armor, mm. okay? Mm. So, so it, goes, it goes both ways. Yes, if I roll five damage from a vehicle weapon and that hits a person, it's not going to deal five damage. It's going to deal 50. Mm-hmm. It goes in reverse as well. If I am shooting my bow and arrow at that frigate <laughs> that is sailing away uh, with 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 full sails, you know, you know, a vast mehardis yar, okay, and I shoot my bow and arrow at it and I hit it and I deal, oh my gosh, I've dealt ten, I rolled really well, I've dealt ten damage. That is only going to equate to one wound towards the ship, okay, which will probably be wiped out by its armor yeah. immediately, Yeah. okay? Exactly. Also, that, that, that ten, 10 to 1 rule also means that 10 points of vehicle armor, equ- excuse me, one point of vehicle armor equates to 10 points of soak. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So this is where you, if you've looked at um, the breach weapon quality, you'll see that it ignores one point of armor, and 10 points of soak. So just keep that in mind as well. So, um, so yeah. And the other, uh, the other terminology that we'll use often is pilot-only actions and pilot-only maneuvers. Now, both terms of pilot-only maneuvers and pilot-only actions are the real crux of these rules, and it's, and it's likely going to be the hardest thing to get your head around. So basically, a vehicle can only perform one pilot-only action and one pilot-only maneuver in a turn. A pilot can choose to perform two pilot-only maneuvers in a turn, and if they do, the vehicle suffers two system strain. Alternatively, if the pilot uh, performs two pilot-only maneuvers and another action that isn't classified as a pilot-only action, uh, like firing the vehicle's guns, the, the vehicle suffers two system strain for the two pilot-only maneuvers, and the pilot also suffers two personal strain as they perform two maneuvers and one action in their turn. Now, a lot of people get confused asking whether pilot-only actions and pilot-only maneuvers are still regular actions and maneuvers, and the short answer is yes, they are. 
The reason why they're called pilot only is so you can tell what actions and maneuvers are limited by the physical constraints of the vehicle. So just repeating that, uh, a vehicle can only perform one pilot only action and one pilot only maneuver. If the vehicle performs a second pilot only maneuver, it suffers two system strain. So effectively, for two system strain, you can uh, do two pilot-only maneuvers and one pilot-only action. That's basically the, the, the nuts and bolts of what you need to know for the constraints that you're under when you're piloting a vehicle. So let's put that into an example. So Let's say the the driver is in uh, what a, a Q branch issued Aston Martin, uh, equipped with a with a hidden machine gun, uh, you know that's just popped out during a chase. So let's move away from Fast and Furious uh, that franchise for a minute, and let's call him Bond, <laughs> just for fun. Um, and he can aim, which is not uh, which is not a pilot only maneuver; it's just a maneuver. Uh, can do a reposition, which is a pilot-only manoeuvre, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, And then he can fire the guns, which is a standard action. Now, in this case, Bond himself suffers two strain for doing the two manoeuvres and an action, but the vehicle only performed one pilot-only manoeuvre, so it suffers no system strain. Alternatively, and remembering that we'll go through these terms later on, Bond could accelerate, which is a pilot-only manoeuvre, then reposition, which is another pilot-only manoeuvre, and then shoot the guns, which is going to be a standard action. In that case, the vehicle suffers two system strain as it performed two pilot-only manoeuvres. Additionally, for the same reason as before, Bond suffers two personal strain for performing the extra manoeuvre, as well as the action of shooting. Yeah, and this is this is actually the same as it runs in Star Wars. Yeah, okay? absolutely the same. You, you've got you've got pilot only actions, and that makes sense. Okay, if I'm going to do a uh, do, do, well, and we'll get to these actions like the equivalent of a dogfight. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, a gunner or a co-pilot can't do that because they don't have the stick. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, uh, so there's there's pilot only actions that only the pilot can perform. But then again, there's also pilot only maneuvers, which almost always relate to. I have control of the stick, okay, (laughs) or the wheel, or or, or, or what it is. So only the pilot can do those types of things. Um, Now, again, to your point, Huli, unlike, and this is a big differentiator between vehicle combat and personal combat, in personal combat, I can choose to take two maneuvers. Mm. And if if I choose not to do an action, I don't even suffer strain. I just take my two maneuvers. In a vehicle... If it is a pilot-only maneuver, I can still only take one. Even if I don't take an action, I can still only take one. Unless mm-hmm. I choose to suffer two system strain. Yep. So so it's even, even if I don't have the action, if I'm going to take more than one pilot-only maneuver, I have to suffer. My vehicle has to suffer to system strength. And as we get into what those pilot only actions and maneuvers are, that will make so much more sense. So hang tight with us on why that is. Okay. Absolutely. Now we've talked about though, that terminology. So if you've got that down, great. So get ready for a wonderful journey that we're about to take you on. So 
we're going to first talk about the stat blocks. Now, vehicles have the following values as, as part of their their stat blocks, and they are silhouette, max speed, handling, defense, armor, hull trauma threshold, and system strain threshold. Now, we're going to go through each of those individually and sort of explain how they're used uh, and what they mean to to the vehicle and to the game itself. So, so Chris, do you want to talk about silhouette? Because it's one of the hardest concepts that some people feel, you know, they can get their head around. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> silhouette is silhouette is so much in the system is abstract. Silhouette is an abstract concept too. Mm. It's the size of the vehicle. Okay, yep. it's how large the vehicle is. Mm. All right, that's that's that's, that's simply it. Okay, um, it's covered on page one hundred nine in combat. Um, vehicle silhouettes can range between zero and ten, or even higher. The thing is, though, silhouette is incredibly abstract, and it's not linear. It increases exponentially. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. so so a silhouette three vehicle is extremely larger than a silhouette two vehicle. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and and this is this is important to know and and to understand a vehicle silhouette because when you attempt certain actions and certain maneuvers, as are detailed in the book, um, some are actually limited by the size of the vehicle. If a vehicle's too large, there's crazy stuff you can't do. I'm sorry, you can't dogfight in a freighter. It ain't gonna happen. Um, <laughs> You know, you 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 just can't do that. But mm. you can in a small fighter plane, mm. um, you know, or or or, or a snub fighter. Mm. Um, the other the other way that silhouette really matters um, is when you are committing combat against another target. If you are shooting at a target with a silhouette that is two or more higher than you, meaning they're that much larger than you, you actually decrease the difficulty of your check by one. This was like this in Star Wars 2. Okay. Mm. So if it's that much bigger than you, it is that much easier to hit. Okay. Mm. Conversely, if you're shooting at a target with silhouette that is two or more smaller than you, you increase the difficulty by one. Mm. Um, if you ever watch Star Wars, okay, you have these snub fighters that are like flitting around these star destroyers and, and the star destroyers have laser blasts going everywhere and the snub fighters really aren't getting hit. It's like, God, these guys must be terrible shots. No, the targets are just the size of gnats. Okay. (laughs) That it's like, it's like, that's the reason. I mean, and this is, this isn't star Wars. I mean, if you get into, if you get into naval combat, okay. In, in, in our era, there is a reason that aircraft carriers have, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, uh, taking out uh, swaths of planes that are flying above you is extremely difficult to do mm. because they are very small, very fast moving targets. Yep. Okay, mm. um, and and you know, and consequently, it's a lot easier for them to drop a bomb on a big old ship. <laughs> so that's <laughs> you know, and and this is this is why in in modern naval warfare, and of course in fantasy and or excuse me, in sci-fi and space opera, uh, space warfare, naval warfare, mm-hmm. um, you often have these huge frigates and capital ships that have a complement of snub fighters. Mm. Because if you get attacked by snub fighters, you need snub fighters to effectively take them out. Yep, absolutely. Mm. So. Now the other thing to remember with silhouette as well is that um, even. It does have a scale of obviously, as Chris mentioned, one to ten. But within each silhouette, it has a scale within themselves. It's not represented in the rules by any stretch. But um, you know, a, a silhouette five vehicle, for example, if, for those familiar with Star Wars, a silhouette five vehicle is the Ghost, but it's also a Carillion Corvette. 
which, yeah. you know, there, there is this much larger scale between each one. So just keep that in mind, especially if you're designing your own vehicles. Um, and the rules, are, are they go through some really good examples on page 109. Uh, of of all the different sort of examples of uh, of different silhouette sizes uh, and things like that, so something to consider. The next statistic, I guess, that we have uh, for vehicles is max speed. Now, this is obviously how fast a vehicle can go at top speed. Now, the maximum speed possible is five, although there are uh, there is a talent uh, that we mentioned before. But uh, in Star Wars, there were other talents that allowed it to increase above five. The one confusing thing, and I don't know whether we actually asked this question uh, when we talked to uh, to Keith and Sam about the EPG, but in the EPG actually says that the top speed is six, which um, sort of goes against the rules. So there may be some errata there. We'll, uh, we'll come back and, and ask that question of Sam and Keith later on. But um, uh, let's go by just what the core rules say. So um, it's it basically the maximum speed possible is five. And it's, it's important to note that even the talent we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. as of yet, there are no talents in the Genesis system that allow you to increase your speed beyond five. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's obviously a good reason for that. And that's because of uh, force movement. Because if you start going to, you know, greater than five, you start working out where the hell am I on the board? Um, as far as, you know, how far a distance is away and, and whatever else. But um, uh, now vehicles can move slower than their maximum speed, okay? So uh, that's pretty obvious. You know, if it uh, if it's docked with a ship and it um, starts flying off, obviously they have to accelerate, and we'll talk about that later. Speed determines how difficult it is to avoid things like asteroids as well. Crowded shopping malls is another example, or anything that requires a steering check of some type. So, um, uh, you know, it, it determines the severity of collisions. We talked about collisions before. So, if you're moving at a speed of three or, f- or between three and four, uh, you upgrade your steering difficulty once and uh, you add plus 20 on any collisions that you have. Uh, at speed five, you're upgrading any steering checks twice and you're adding plus 40 on the critical hit table when you do that to do collisions. And also you, and this sort of like harkens back to what Chris just said about, uh, you know, a a large ship that is firing at some of these smaller fighter planes that um, they have to upgrade the difficulty to hit them once. Well, let's be clear on this. Speed three to four is fast. Yeah. Like, like, like you are moving very fast speed five or higher. That is like blinding fast. Mm. Like, like in, and, and I mean, let's, let's talk about, and Huli, maybe you can get into this because honestly, the best way I, that I find to understand how fast speed one through speed five is, is to, as the rules point out, look at how many range bands your force movement is, which is based on your speed. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if we look at it, uh, we've got, if you're traveling at speed zero, obviously you're not moving. So you don't have any force movement. Uh, if you're traveling at speed one, you move one range band. Okay. Um, which kind of, if you want to put it into a mechanical sense, is just like a person that moves from, uh, from short range to medium range. Uh, speed of two, they move two range bands. Speed of three to four, they move three range bands. And then speed of five, they move four range bands. So in other words, 
to to put it into that mechanical sense, at speed five, you're going from short to medium to long to extreme to strategic. Before you do anything, before you do anything on board your ship, that's how far you've got to move. And that can play it can play into into things really badly, especially if you're heading towards um, some sort of a canyon, for example. You know, you're going to want to slow down. Um, so uh, something to consider there. But um, something to note is that force movement, um, as I said, it's in range bands, not maneuvers. Okay. So what uh, what's even more interesting is that one of those range bands can be short range to engaged. Now, this is an important thing to remember here because it's something that it wasn't, it's not really spelled out. Um, and I actually asked Sam Gregor Stewart about this, and uh, he confirmed that uh, if you, for example, if you've got a speed of, of two and you have to move two range bands, that could be medium to short and then short to engaged. Um, and that's going to be really, really important to talk about uh, when we start discussing, you know, mecha and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, speed can also determine what vehicle actions and maneuvers are possible, as we mentioned before as well. Yeah. And when you think about how blinding some of these speeds are, you have to also realize that sometimes it's relative. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, um, if, if, I'm, if I'm at speed five, I'm going to move four range bands. That's literally going to take me out of both visual and auditory range of anyone around me. Mm. Okay. Just like that. Boom. That's how fast I'm moving. But if the guy next to me is also moving at speed five (laughs) (laughs) or at speed four, we're still pretty close together as long as we're moving in the same direction. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is where racing comes in. But anyway. Yeah. Now, speaking of racing, another big important statistic that's a part of vehicle stat blocks that everyone should understand is handling. Mm. Um, this is another holdover from Star Wars. Uh, works exactly the same way it does in Star Wars. Handling is a stat that measures the inherent agility of the vehicle, not how fast they can go, but but how quickly they can how, how I mean how they can handle, just how agile they are, how quickly they can turn, how responsive they are. Um, the best example I can give you is if you look at a drag racer car, or drag racer, okay, mm. that car has almost no handling, <laughs> okay, <laughs> none. That, that car cannot turn on a dime. In fact, it cannot turn at all. It is designed for one thing, speed of five. <laughs> <laughs> that, is what is it, that is what it is designed for. Yeah. Handling is not about that. Handling is about how nimble the vehicle is, mm. okay? Now that 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 agility, that handling ranges from minus four to plus four, and that minus four to plus four determines the number of either boost die or black setback die that are applied to any steering check made with that vehicle. A positive number provides that many boost die, and a negative number provides that many setback die. Larger vehicles almost always have uh, much lower handling ratings, while small vehicles understandably typically have much higher handling ratings. Um, and honestly, there's a great table in the core rule book on page 221 that has some great examples of what types of vehicles have what type of handling um, so that you can get a feel for, for, for what has what basically. Mm, yeah. And again, uh, to sort of mirror the rules when we talk about defense um, is that, uh, and I'll talk about defense in a minute is that uh, there is that, 
cap out of uh, of minus four or a cap out of plus four. So something to consider there as well. Um, so let's talk about defense. So it represents basically shields or or other sort of technology that is going to be on board the vehicle. Uh, and that kind of works like defense does in personal scale. So it's going to apply a number of setback die equal to that rating to any attacks which target the vehicle. Uh, the, it maxes out, as I just mentioned, to uh, to four, which means that the most you're ever going to get from the defense of a vehicle is four setback die. And it's one set value. And this is going to be, as we mentioned, we're going to sort of compare Star Wars to this. It's one big differentiator between the, the two. In Star Wars, uh, there was forward and aft values for vehicles with silhouette uh, zero to four. Uh, while vehicles with a silhouette of five or more had forward, aft, port, and starboard. Genesis replaced all of that to remove any sort of levels of complication um, and uh, mainly caused by facing uh, because realistically, when you're talking about any sort of an abstract game, facing doesn't necessarily come into it unless you're talking from a narrative sense. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so it just basically has one single value, which is applied to any direction that you're, you're hitting the vessel. Love this change. Mm. Love it. It's great. Love it. Love it. Um, after defense, we have its sister armor, okay, mm. which we mentioned before is basically soak for mm. vehicles. Yeah. Um, it works just like soak in personal scale. It's how tough the vehicle is, how much damage it can absorb before it starts, you know, affecting it basically mm. um, hit by hit. Um, normally armor or high armor is reserved for military style vehicles. Mm. Um, it, it can range from zero to as high as seven, um, which we see in the world war two era battleship from the expanded players guide. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, honestly guys, it's just soak for vehicles. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, the next one we have is hull trauma threshold. So it's basically wounds for your vehicle. Um, and it's a reflection of the vehicle's sturdiness and resistance to damage. So, if something is hit, uh, you're obviously going to take the armor, in, armor into consideration, and then you're going to apply whatever damage is left over to your whole trauma threshold. Uh, so, yeah, as I said, works exactly like wounds do in character scale. And the last point is system strain threshold, and, and it represents a vehicle's capacity to endure the rigors of, of heavy use. So, um, you know, for example, riggings on a ship or a power plant or on a mech or, or the engine of a common automobile. You know, it may even represent the tires on a, on a, uh, a standard car. Um, system strain cannot be recovered, as we mentioned before, in the same way that character strain can with use of advantages. And it is a resource that you really need to keep an eye on when you're playing. Uh, because as soon as you reach your uh, system strain threshold, uh, your vehicle stops. Yeah, stops dead. <laughs> so very important. Yeah. Now, these pr- these primary stats that we've gone through are kind of the most important things you really need to look at when you're looking at a vehicle stat block to understand the vehicle. Hmm. There are also a host of secondary characteristics. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on them, but we are going to briefly go through them. Each stat block also tells you the control skill for the vehicle. This is what skill is used to steer the vehicle. Hmm. Okay, Driving, piloting, operating. Hmm. There is the complement which is how many crew members are needed to operate the vehicle. Mm. 
Um, now, this can get a little hinky when you talk about skeleton crews and minimal compliments. Yeah, because there are no real rules. Now, one of the things that uh, the old D6 Star Wars had, it started to introduce something very, very similar, uh, where you had uh, your crew and then you had the skeleton crew. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of examples of someone jumping aboard a, a frigate where they've had to steal that. Uh, you know, I, I'm looking at... Um, Star Wars Rebels, when they had one of the uh, Gazanti freighters that uh, that they stole from uh, while they're on Lethal, it uh, it normally has a complement much larger than three. I think they had on board the ship. So um, there are some things that obviously the rules don't take into consideration. What I would suggest, uh, and Chris, you may have some other suggestions as well, is that if you have a ship which does have a minimal crew, and you don't meet those uh, requirements that, uh, depending on what sort of nature of, of the vessel is, you may not be able to operate it at all, or you might be looking at upgrades to checks or um, setback die, uh, depending on what sort of the, the actual numbers are. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's absolutely the best way to go. Um, you know, you talk about examples. I think about, I think about Captain Jack Sparrow and <laughs> Will Turner. Um, you know, stealing, uh, you know, a, a, a guy, it wasn't a frigate, but it was a, it was a pretty massive galleon yeah. um, that they stole and it was just the two of them and they managed to get away with it. They had to get a crew pretty quick to operate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but they were able to do, to, to do enough with it, at least to get it off and you raise anchor and, and get out of there. Mm. Um, and yeah, if you've got, if you've got a skeleton crew, yeah, seriously, start throwing setback dice at all the checks all the checks on board the ship that have to do with running the ship or gunnery or anything like that mm. um, or, or upgrades. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things to, to also take into consideration uh, is uh, knack for it. If you are going to be going around stealing, um, you know, vessels like what Chris just mentioned, make sure you've got knack for it because it'll remove Ted's head back die. But anyway, <laughs> that's a side note. This is, this is what allows Captain Jack to <laughs> with one other person steal a galleon. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there you go. So, uh, on the flip side of the coin of the complement, which is how many crew are needed to operate, we have passenger capacity. It's very simple. It's how many passengers, not crew, but passengers can stay comfortably in the vehicle. Um, also, your crew and your passengers have to get fed. Uh, that is where consumables come into play. Um, <laughs> consumable stat is how long the vehicle can survive without needing replenishment. This means fuel, supplies, potentially oxygen if you're in space. Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, you know, uh, if you're if you're at sea, fresh water, food, right? You know, fuel for a vehicle. Uh, it's earthbound. You know, things like that. Now, now these these sorts of things can, uh, you know, they don't come up very often, uh, to be honest with you, especially consumables. Um, until you absolutely, you know, you as a GM, you just want them to come into uh, into account. One of the things that, that I've seen used quite successfully is when I've had players basically sit down and do the math for, and it was more of a, it didn't take them very long because it wasn't a big thing, but they wanted to rescue a whole heap of people off the planet. Um, but uh, which, you know, given the size, sure, you can fit them all in, but it's certainly not going to be comfortable. And there could be some story elements thrown in amongst there with people basically being too close to each other and invading each other's personal space. But, um, you know, if you've got that many people and suddenly your hyperdrive breaks down or something like that, um, you know, or you break a mast, if we're talking about sailing ships, 
uh, you have to somehow manage to keep these people alive. And the consumables is what you're looking at to do that because that's going to tell you how much of a normal crew plus the uh, your passengers are going to be able to survive and how long for. Uh, so, um, yeah, you might find that your two months' worth of consumables uh, evaporates in less than a week, which means that you've got to do some serious thinking about how you're going to get from point A to point B. Yes. Now, if consumables are the sort of cargo that allows the ship to go, there is also encumbrance capacity. This is how much a vehicle can carry. Cargo, not people, not consumables, but additional cargo. When you're talking about especially much larger vehicles, um, you know, whether those be galleons or, or I'm sorry, uh, space transports. Mm. I mean – the ability to transport cargo is very common um, and can often be critical, a critical part of an adventure you're running. Um, so this is, you know, how much can the vehicle hold? Um, and then we've got price and rarity, how much it costs, how difficult it is to find the vehicle in the first place. But what about weapons, Huli, the bottom <laughs> part of that stat block? So, uh, yeah, so basically the weapons, they go bang, bang. Um, no, there's a bit more description than that. So, <laughs> so... Uh, we have in there, we've got a, a list of sort of options for each, uh, for each weapon. So we've got fire arcs. So that's going to be what sort of areas are going to be able to be fired using that particular weapon. It's not a big thing for, uh, for some smaller vessels. Um, but certainly when it comes to, you know, your capital ships and things like that, um, you need to be working out what can fire where so that, um, you know, if you suddenly you just go, right, well, I can just fire every single one of my weapons in this direction. Well, you're going to kill people, especially your characters, uh, really, really quickly. So it's, uh, it's more of an abstract thing more than anything else. Um, just to consider, um, if you wish to sort of bring that into, uh, into your games more. Um, when you start, you know, you can go into, especially with ship combat and things like that. And I'm talking about um, sailing vessels and whatever else. So that's something to consider. But we then have the range. Um, and most of the time when it comes to these things, they're going to be strategic range. Uh, so that's going to be anything that, you know, you're firing at is going to be at whatever range that it mentions. Rarely are you going to have something that's going to be short range or medium range. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly long, extreme and, uh, and strategic are going to be, often be used there. And this is a huge differentiator from Star Wars mm. where, where small ranges were the common thing. But again, that's because as we've said, guys, vehicles use the same range scale as personal combat. Yep. Okay. Mm. So, so yeah, I would expect a cannon to be able to travel a lot faster and further than an arrow. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So consequently it, it's going to be an extreme or strategic range weapon. Yeah. Mm. Now, one of the things that we, uh, that I'll talk about just because you pointed that out, Chris, that weapons in Star Wars, yes, they operated on their own different sort of a scale, but they also used a difficulty of average for all ranges and all weapons. Yeah. Um, and they relied on the silhouette increasing or decreasing the, the difficulty of the hit. In Genesis, it's just if it's two or more silhouettes higher, you decrease the difficulty. If it's two or more silhouettes lower, you increase the difficulty. But in Star Wars, it, there was another level on either end of that scale. 
So, you know, to, to, to have a massive Star Destroyer being firing at a, an X-Wing, you know, you're looking at um, a formidable, if not um, potentially, depending on what sort of character is in, in the, the vessel, uh, it might end up being an impossible shot. This system doesn't have that. And the reason they removed it is because it makes sense and it all operates in the one way that the difficulty to hit is going to be based on how far away you are for something. So in the same sort of way that we do for, uh, for anything in, in, um, in character scale, we do the same thing for vehicles. Very, very simple to follow. This is this is another thing that I think is tied for my favorite differentiation, <laughs> like like why I like this better. OK, it's just, yeah, distance matters. I'm sorry. It does. Mm-hmm. OK, it, it should. All right. And whether I'm firing a bow and arrow at personal scale or I'm firing a cannon from the deck of a ship, short range is easy. Medium range is average. <laughs> long range is hard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That the increased parity between personal scale and vehicle scale combat Hmm. huge fan absolutely yeah definitely the other thing to take into consideration as well when it comes to vehicle weapons is that some of them have a uh, a new quality which is called personal scale so what this means is that if you've got a uh, a cannon on board a uh, let's say that it's a, a car or a jeep okay that it may be a personal scale weapon so they give you that so that the damage which is caused is done at personal scale damage. So you don't need to worry about the 10 to 1 rule. Uh, so, uh, so that's something to can take into consideration when it's vehicles. If it doesn't have that item quality, basically it's the 10 to 1 rule. If it does, it doesn't. Simple as that. It's pretty simple. And if you, if you are a GM that is wanting to do like a cool vehicle encounter where you've got, you know, PCs and NPCs jumping from vehicle to vehicle, you know, it's something like that. You use personal scale weapons on the vehicles if you're going to have vehicle weapons. Okay, it 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 makes sense. But also realize that those personal scale weapons aren't going to do the same kind of damage to a vehicle. All right, that a vehicle weapon would Mm -hmm. because they don't operate under the ten to one rule. Um, A great example historically, I could think of this, Huli, is um, when we talk about galleons and sailing ships in Mm -hmm. the days of swashbuckling and piracy. (laughs) Grape shot. Yes. Um, uh, people would load grape shot into the cannons and it would it, it wouldn't I mean, it, it could do a little bit of damage to a ship, but not much. But the whole point was that it, it was it was a cannon equivalent of a shotgun in order to take out the crew. That was the point. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's that's very much the same thing. That would be an example of, oh, yeah, fighting grape shot. That's personal scale weaponry. Mm. Exactly. So. As we're talking about these secondary characteristics, mm-hmm. Um, the expanded player guide Huli also provided us a bunch of new characteristics hmm. to a vehicle stat block. At this point, we've talked about everything in the core rulebook. We've talked about all the primary and secondary characteristics so people can understand what makes a vehicle a vehicle. But I think there's a couple interesting things that the EPG <laughs> gave us. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about because if you if you find a vehicle stat block, especially in the EPG, it could have one of these you know, seven new characteristics, stat characteristics, and you may not know what the heck it is they're talking about. Mm, absolutely. So these additional rules, uh, there's quite a number of them, as Chris said. So the first one we have is all-terrain. Um, and uh, it, it basically it's when making a steering check to direct this vehicle, your character may remove two setback die added to the check due to terrain. 
Very simple. It's a great little ability. Uh, all of the mechs, for example, have it, uh, as well as uh, tanks are a big one for having it as well. So, um, you know, the... the it, if there is some sort of terrain that's going to be in the way, make sure that you're in one of those vehicles with the all-terrain. <laughs> yes. Now, one of the nastier <laughs> abilities uh, that you can put on a vehicle, and we find it in the EPG, is it, it, it sounds like an action, but it's not. It, well, it kind of is, but it's an ability. It's called Bombing Run. Hmm. Um, basically, if a vehicle has the Bombing Run characteristic, the bombardier inside the vehicle can pick a point on the ground. It's beneath the vehicle. Obviously, it's aerial vehicle, bomber. And can then spend an action to perform a hard three purple gunnery check. And if the check is successful, all characters and vehicles within medium range of that point suffer a hit dealing 15 damage plus one per uncanceled success. Um, which is incredibly nasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the the gunner can also spend advantage or triumph appropriately to inflict a critical hit or critical injury on one vehicle or character affected by that bombing run and can do so multiple times. So if you roll three advantage, you can inflict three crits on three different vehicles or people. Okay. <laughs> um, at your GM's discretion, the bombing run can also destroy structures, shatter the landscape, do other damage. Um, you know, and, and obviously once the vehicle has made a bombing run and it's used that characteristic, mm. it cannot do so again until it has returned to base and been reloaded with bombs. Mm. Um, it's a very cool characteristic there in the EPG that you can apply to really give that shock and awe in an encounter um, and, and really decimate things or give your PCs a powerful tool to take on a lot of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we'll, we'll oh, I'm going to ask the question of Keith because um, with the, uh, the, that particular ability, uh, when it starts talking about 15 damage, it basically says that all characters and vehicles within medium range of that point suffer 15 damage. Is that vehicle scale? Is that personal scale? Um, yeah. I, so I assume it was personal scale because 15 uh, vehicle scale, that's insane. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we'll, we'll get a bit of a rata on that, I think, at some point. But anyway, <laughs> but yeah, it's a potent ability. Uh, and it's only on one vehicle within the EPG, uh, which is the World War II bomber. Uh, but, uh, I mean, that's what they're designed for. So, uh, so it's really, really good. Now, one of the, uh, the uh, additional abilities is massive. Now, this was brought directly over from Age of Rebellion, uh, which uh, is uh, because obviously, you know, massive capital scale ships are, are, are what the, the Age of Rebellion was, was all about. So, uh, and it's just quite simply making an attack targeting this vehicle. The critical rating of any weapons used counts as too higher. So if you've got a vehicle with, uh, and you're firing at a, uh, another vehicle with the, uh, the massive characteristic, uh, if you had a difficulty, I'm oh, sorry, a um, critical rating of three, you would need a critical rating of five uh, to be able to, uh, to actually do a crit. Pretty simple. It's too big. We can't hit. We can't damage it. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of of big damage, uh, the uh, I love uh, and very fitting for the EPG, which introduced um, you know a brand new setting around uh, you know the the you know Greek and, and Roman legends. Mm. Uh, uh, the ram, mm. obviously, a, a staple of the sailing ships of that era. Yeah. Um, you know, which basically puts a ram on your vehicle. When this vehicle deliberately collides with another vehicle, the other vehicle suffers eight damage to its whole trauma threshold and adds 40 to the critical hit result that it suffers. Um, the attacking vehicle 
reduces also again it's going to suffer a crit because it, a collision has occurred um but it will reduce the results of the critical hit it suffers by minus 20 mm. so uh really really wicked you know quality to add to a vehicle as yeah. a kind of a new sort of weapon yeah and i tell you what if you're a trimere captain who has a ram on board and doesn't have offensive driving you're crazy <laughs> <laughs> so that's yep. that's crazy. Yeah, tri reams, tri reams have rams. They just do. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so yeah. But uh, couple that with that talent. Wow, that's nasty. So the next one that we have is resilient. When the vehicle suffers a critical hit and your character is operating it, you may spend a story point to roll a second result and choose the result you prefer. That's handy. <laughs> Yeah, very, very handy and represents those those really tough vehicles that have ancillary systems or things like that yeah. um, or just just hard to to really suffer and inflict massive criticals on. Mm. So mm. it's there. Tanks in particular. <laughs> um, the EPG did nothing if not give us a lot of rules around collisions and, you know, with RAM and things like that. Yeah. They also introduced another quality called spiky bits <laughs> um, uh, when the vehicles involved in a collision, all other vehicles. And characters involved in the collision add plus 30 to the results of any critical hit or any critical injury they suffer. Mm. Vehicles covered in spiky bits. If that's not inspired by Fury Road, I don't know what is. <laughs> Shiny and chrome! <laughs> oh dear, I love that movie. And, and, our, <laughs> and our last, uh, the, the last ability is uh, vulnerable. So it's the opposite of resilient. And all successful combat checks targeting the vehicle add three, yes, count it, three advantages to the result. Wow. <laughs> That's nuts. Some vehicles suck. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So, uh, so yeah. So, all of those, uh, you know, the, they're all fantastic. And no doubt um, somebody will be uh, looking at, at adding vehicles and to, their, to their own product that they put up on the foundry. And uh, yeah, it makes them a little bit more interesting to uh, to add those additional rules to uh, to just differentiate it from you know something else. It's really cool. Now, the last real aspect of looking at a vehicle stat block is actually something to consider about a vehicle that's not a part of the stat block, but it's important to know. And we'll we'll talk about it very briefly. And that is the vehicle systems. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Every vehicle has systems, and there is a sidebar you guys can read page 221 of the core rulebook that has a whole list of vehicle components and what occurs if each of those systems one by one is compromised mm. such as through i don't know a critical hit <laughs> additionally beyond crits those individual systems can also be targeted um, on a ship via the aim maneuver um, however it is important to note at least one point of damage must occur for the system to be considered compromised yeah. um, so obviously if i'm shooting at a, a ship engine with my pistol, I likely will not be able to get past the 10 to one rule. Okay. Mm. But if I've got a vehicle mounted weapon or a vehicle weapon, then I'm, I'm, I'm golden. Mm. Uh, but yeah. So also important to consider vehicle systems. It's another huge component as well. Yeah. So that's the basis of what vehicles are and, um, and what they contain and how to be able to understand the, the, the rules effectively of what, makes a vehicle tick but um you know next we really need to look at uh, and we talked about it earlier is about uh, vehicle actions and maneuvers 
in, in any given round, uh, a vehicle can perform one pilot-only action and one pilot-only manoeuvre. The vehicle can also perform a second pilot-only manoeuvre at the cost of two system strain, as we mentioned before. Additionally, the operator would need to spend two personal strain unless they downgraded their own personal manoeuvre to perform the vehicle's second pilot-only manoeuvre. That's something to, to really remember. Now, each lists certain conditions or restrictions, uh, pilot-only, silhouette, and current speed. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through each of these uh, maneuvers and, and actions very briefly and, and basically just, just explain what each of them do. So we'll start off with vehicle maneuvers. So Chris, do you want to go through our first one? Yeah. And, and guys, you know, these are all listed in the book. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on these. We're just going to briefly highlight what they are. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I, I, in fact, I want to talk about the first two vehicle maneuvers together because they're very similar. Yeah. Accelerate and decelerate. They are both pilot-only maneuvers. All right, can be done with any ship silhouette size. For accelerate, any speed. Okay, decelerate. Obviously, you got to have a speed, so a speed of one or more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for accelerate or decelerate, you either increase or decrease the vehicle's current speed by one. For each additional point of speed you wish to increase uh, that round. The vehicle takes one system strain. So, in other words, if you want to accelerate, you can go from a speed. If you're if you're a standstill, you can go to a speed one, and you're done. Hmm. If you're already at speed two and you want to jump to a speed five, to that blinding speed in a single round for that one maneuver, you can do so. But it's going to take two system strain to get it done. Hmm. All right. You obviously get one point of of speed increase for free, um, and then you got to pay. Two extra for the two extra points of speed increase, okay? Mm. And at the same thing, deceleration works exactly the same way, just yep. in reverse. Mm. And I also like to point out, that's a huge differentiation, another one between Genesis and Star Wars. Star Wars did not have, actually, the ability to rapidly decelerate. No. Um, and, way, and to be honest, they don't. you didn't really need it because you didn't have forced movement. Yep. <laughs> but But now we do, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so this is this is kind of interesting because Star Wars as well had like – you had these same maneuvers for accelerate and decelerate, but they only let you increase or decrease your speed by one. That was it. Mm. And then there was like another special maneuver you could do to punch it, which would like – you know, you could do like massive speed increase, right? Mm. Yeah. And it costs you some strain. Here they've just simplified it. It's like, look, you can spend a maneuver, pilot-only maneuver to accelerate or decelerate your ship, and you get one point of acceleration or deceleration for free. The rest are going to cost you some system strain. Mm. Easy peasy. Yeah, uh, it really smoothed out that, and um, it's absolutely fantastic. So, um, so our next pilot-only maneuver um, is, or our our next maneuver, should I say, uh, is brace for impact, and it's a pilot-only maneuver. Um, it's any silhouette and it's any speed. Now, this is something which it's really really useful, um, especially if you don't necessarily have barrel roll yet, for example. Um, so, uh, it remains until the beginning of the pilot's next turn. It reduces the damage taken up to the silhouette, taking the same amount of system strain. If you're in a smaller vehicle, system strain, again, it's going to be a problem. But the difference is, and we'll talk about this later on, is that you can repair system strain on the fly. You can't repair hull damage on the fly. Correct. Except once. <laughs> once for the whole combat. You can only do it once. So it, it's sort of like the last ditch effort. 
So, you know, if you can afford to move your, your strain around, this is a really good uh, maneuver to do to, to enable that to, to occur. So, but just remember it is, uh, the limitation is silhouette uh, of, your, of your vehicle. Um, and it also reduces the severity of a critical hit by 10 per point of system strain as well, up to the silhouette. So, um, so yeah, Star Wars did not have this maneuver at all. Um, and as I said, it's great for dogfighting and it acts as really, it acts of a blade of armor, um, which is a common complaint with, with Star Wars vehicles, uh, that they were too easily damaged and they couldn't replicate things like, uh, what we see in A New Hope with X-Wings flying around the Death Star as, uh, as well as some of the stuff that we see in Rogue Squadron. Uh, so, uh, very, very useful there. Quite. Um, next up, uh, is, uh, another maneuver called Evade. All right. This is another another pilot only maneuver. Um, it is limited to ships of or vehicles of silhouette zero to four. If you're a big boy, you can't do this. All right. <laughs> it represents it represents your ship being fast, nimble, and kind of juking to avoid damage. Hmm. Consequently, your vehicle has to have a speed of three or better to current a current speed of three or better yep. in order to use this maneuver. It, its effect remains until the beginning of the pilot's next turn, and basically. Any shot that targets this vehicle while this evade is in effect, upgrade its difficulty one time. Mm. Consequently, <laughs> any shot from this vehicle, because the pilot is juking wildly to evade, also has its difficulty upgraded one time. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And if you're familiar with Star Wars, this replaces evasive maneuvers, which was the uh, uh, similar maneuver in Star Wars. Yep. And then the last maneuver that you can do is called reposition, and it's a pilot-only maneuver. It's any silhouette, and you have to have a speed of one or greater. Uh, and it allows you to move the vehicle one range band. And as I said before, the other thing that it does is it allows you to move from short to engaged. So if you're wanting to, you know, get that little bit closer, uh, docking maneuvers, for example, this is the the maneuver that you need to do. Now, it's important to note with that, that's in addition to the forced movement. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, like, look, like if, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm booking it at a speed of three, mm-hmm. okay. Um, and I'm going to move, I'm going to move what, what was, what, what speed three is it? Is it, is it, is it two, is it two range bands at that point? Um, yeah. Um, no, it's three range bands at that point. Three range bands at that point. If I'm booking it at a speed of three, I'm going to move three range bands at the start of my turn. Hmm. Period. End of sentence. If I want to move an additional range band, I can pull off this pilot only maneuver to get another range band of movement. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's extremely important. All right. Now coming back to star Wars, it's also important to note that when it comes to vehicle maneuvers, there are some things that we've kind of mentioned before that have been removed. Hmm. Um, and, and I, I don't mind at all. Um, the first is stay on target, um, which which uh, increased your ability to hit at the cost of being easier to hit. It was kind of like the inverse of evade. Mm. Okay, they got rid of that. The angle deflector shields maneuver is gone because there's no more defense arcs in ships, so it's really not needed. Mm. And as I mentioned before, they got rid of punch it. There's no there's no separate maneuver for rapid acceleration. They just rolled it into regular acceleration and simplified it. Yeah. And if there's one thing that this system has uh, has introduced is uh, it really simplifies it. Removing those things was a great thing. So, yeah. All right. So we've talked about all of the vehicle maneuvers. So now let's talk about vehicle actions. 
So yes. the first one is the big one, which is dangerous driving. Now, it's a pilot-only action, which is obvious. It's a silhouette any, and its current speed must be one or greater. Uh, because if you're at zero, you're pretty much not moving, so nothing's going to be dangerous to you. So uh, any time a character needs to be making a piloting check due to sharp turns or obstacles or any sort of terrain is when you're going to be using a dangerous driving action. Now, the, in Star Wars, there used to be this really complicated formula that you had to do where you had to take half of the silhouette of the vehicle silhouette, round it up, and then take its current speed, and then using the larger number, that's the difficulty, yeah. and then blah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> so they got rid of that, which was absolutely fantastic, and the difficulty is just equal to the vehicle silhouette. Which is great. It is, but keep in mind, speed still factors in. Like we talked about when we were talking about max speed. Yep. If you're moving at a speed of three to four, you're going to upgrade that difficulty once. If mm-hmm. you're moving at a speed of five or, be- or better, you're going to upgrade that difficulty twice. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so speed still does matter, but it's so much easier than the mathematical <laughs> formula they had in Star Wars. So, 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 so much better. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. It's very, very cool. So what's our next action that you can do? Damage control. Oldie but a goodie from Star Wars. Mm -hmm. It is not pilot only. Anybody on board the ship can do it, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can be done on any silhouette ship traveling at any speed. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's an action that lets you repair damage on the fly. Okay, so especially if you've got a a larger vehicle with a a crew complement there and several PCs inside, it's a great way for PC actions to happen during an encounter. Mm -hmm. The thing is, though, it can only be performed once per encounter for whole trauma. Or you can do it as many times as you want to for system strain. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and there is a difficulty uh, to do it. It, it, It's it's not too complex, but it depends on the amount of trauma or strain that the vehicle suffered. And that table is actually on page 288 of the core rulebook. Also, damage control can be used to repair critical hits. Uh, which also can be attempted multiple times. Yeah, it's, it's like you've got this one action that's there to do damage control, whether it's hull trauma, you know, once an encounter, system strain, whenever you want, critical hit repair, whenever you want, you know, representing that those those you know PCs inside the ship doing mechanics basically to fix the ship yep. <laughs> on the floor, pretty yeah. much. And the next one that we have is another one which has uh, been taken from Star Wars as well, which is gain the advantage. Now, this, this can be a little bit complex, but um, just bear with us. So, uh, it's a pilot-only action, and it's silhouette one to four. This sort of stuff is basically your dogfighting when you're trying to line up your ship with the back of somebody else's ship and stay with them. And the current speed has to be four or more. So, you really need to be in that small fighter craft to be doing this sort of thing. So the difficulty uh, is based on table 32-6, which is on page 29. And it's all based around the speed of the vehicle. Yeah, and that table on on um, page 229, it, it's kind of interesting, and it, it actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is basically the like the the, the dog fighting action, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it, it all depends on your speed, which you, again, you got to be pretty, pretty blazing at four or better. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's compared to the vehicle you're targeting. Okay. So if you guys are both traveling at the same speed, um, it's, it's an average difficulty, right? If you are one or more higher than the target vehicle, meaning you're moving a lot faster than them, it's actually an easy check. 
Mm-hmm. And then if, if uh, you're moving uh, one below them in terms of the target vehicle, in terms of speed, um, it's a hard check. If your speed is two or more less than them, it's actually a daunting uh, four purple check, mm. which, which makes sense, right? Um, I mean, you're trying to gain the advantage on an opponent. If, if they are moving at a much faster speed than you, it's going to be very hard to do, yep. right? Mm. I mean, but what if you're successful? I mean, if you're successful based on those difficulties, what happens? Well, Chris, if you succeed, you upgrade your skill dice to hit the target of your gain the advantage action twice, and the target upgrades the difficulty of their attack to hit you also twice. So it's really, really hard, because obviously we're talking about a system that doesn't really have facing. So they could be, you know, the vehicles could be going in between each other and and firing and, and whatever else. It doesn't really matter. So they've taken this this into consideration by saying that you upgrade the skill twice to hit and you upgrade the difficulty to be hit by that target twice. Now, what's really interesting with gaining the advantage is that if you gain the advantage, you might want to try to gain the advantage of the person who's got the advantage of you. So if initially the difficulty was average and your character has the advantage on a target, As an action, they can perform the gain the advantage action themselves, but with a difficulty of hard. So, uh, you know, this can go to and fro between the two for as long as needed, but each time the difficulty increases by one. Of course, it's, it's also possible for another target to get the advantage on you, but their difficulty starts at the base difficulty as per the table on page 229, and you will need to keep track of who has advantage of you and the level of difficulty that is going on with that advantage being taken. But honestly, uh, with that many upgrades that you're going to perform with your check, chances are that you're going to destroy the other target, especially considering that, you know, it's between Silhouette 1 and 4. And that's something to to really, really remember as well as the, the Silhouette limitation of 1 to 4 and the speed limitation of 4 or more. Yeah, I mean, and th- this is what represents dogfighting. I mean, I mean, I mean, straight up, you, you spend your action on a round to gain the advantage on that pilot. And, and then that means the next attack, you got plus two upgrades, two upgrades, right? Mm-hmm. But on his turn, he can try to break that and gain the advantage on you. But it's this escalation, escalation, escalation until somebody loses. And then at that point, that other the, the winner is then free on the next round to take the shot and almost certainly succeed with two upgrades, mm, right? Yeah. Um, probably for something massive like a crit too. If I've got, if I'm, if I've all of a sudden tossed two extra yellow dice potentially into the pool. Mm, you're absolutely right. Now, one thing with gaining the advantage though is that this, uh, and this is probably going to be a little bit confusing, especially since, you know, we're talking about uh, positioning, which is not really sort of something that we talk a lot about, um, well, the, the rules don't talk a lot about, um, is that gaining advantage is not range dependent. No. So what this means is that you can be anywhere on uh, on, on the battlefield or the, the uh, you know, whatever you want to call the, the area that you're fighting in amongst. But, um, yeah, you could be at extreme range. Um, One of the suggestions that I have is that you do put a limitation on it based on the range of the weapons. Now, in Star Wars, there were sensors. Uh, In Genesis, they don't really have that. So you could always say that you had to be in sensor range to be able to do that, and that makes the most sense. But in, in Genesis, you don't have that. 
so look at the, uh, the, the range of the greatest weapon that they have. And look, most of the time that's going to be strategic. But in case that it isn't, just use that as the limitation for how far away you would have to be. Some people may say that it has to be within, you know, short range or medium range. Honestly, do whatever it is that you need to do to make it work for your game. Um, but, uh, you know, as raw, it's not range dependent at all. So you don't need to worry about range when doing gain the advantage. So, so yeah, gain the advantage is, is, is a classic pullover from star wars it functions a little bit differently here mm-hmm. but very very cool very worthwhile yeah. the, the kicker though is that current speed yeah not every vehicle can do this mm. and that's that that's really important and then when it's time to take that shot you can do the next action mm. um that you can do which is to perform a combat check with a weapon yeah. obviously weaponry is not limited to pilot specific uh, necessarily unless the weapon calls it out mm-hmm. so you have gunners on a ship so it's not a pilot only action any silhouette, any speed, you can shoot a gun. That's what it is. Hmm. The difficulty to do so is based on everything we've talked about to this point. Range, potentially modified by the silhouette, difference between you and the target, um, any defense they have, terrain, cover, concealment, things like that. Hmm. Um, the attack has to be in firing arcs. And just like personal scale combat, the damage the weapon does, it has a set damage. It's equal to that base damage plus one per uncanceled success, just hmm. like we're used to. But remember, as we've said, the 10 to 1 rule versus character scale. Extremely important. And also, as we've talked about, armor obviously applies, uh, you know, just like soak does in personal scale, potentially reducing the damage. Um, and weapons, of course, with breach, the breach quality, you know, ignore so many points of armor. Yeah. So very, very handy. Now, there are two additional actions that they mentioned in the core rules, uh, which is, again, a bit of a layover uh, from Age of Rebellion, uh, where we talk about the sort of actions that, uh, that can only be done by massive, massive vehicles, uh, and that's Blanket Barrage and Concentrated Barrage. So, Chris, do you want to go through uh, Blanket Barrage? Yeah, so blanket barrage is as as one of these two barrage actions. All right, now because these are really gunnery tools, they're of course not pilot only, um, but they're they're restricted to very specific, as you said, holy types of ships. You know, capital ships, huge ships. You know, frigates, warships. Um, basically, they have to have a silhouette of five or higher. And have to be moving at a relatively low speed in order to pull this kind of barrage off. Or it's, they're just moving too fast for it to work. Um, so they have to have a current speed of 0 to 3. Now the blanket barrage is is basically where this classic military trope where the gunner is using the ship's weapons to raise just this curtain of fire around the ship for the intent of protecting it from smaller vehicles because the smaller vehicles are trying to avoid collateral damage, right? Yeah. So that any, any small vehicle is attempting to attack your big ship must brave this maelstrom of, of, <laughs> you know, heavy fire basically. Right. You know, also the action tends to speed up combat a lot when your vehicle has a lot of guns, mm. very important tip for a GM. All right. <laughs> In order to pull this off, you have to select all the gun, or, or at least two, has to have at least two, at least two guns of a specific type, okay, in a specific firing arc, okay? And when I say a specific type, I mean they all have to be the same kind of gun or weapon, right? So all cannons or if it's on a frigate, you know, or, or a, a merchant steamer or something or, you know, all, you know, Tesla coils on your <laughs> steampunk dirigible, right? They're all facing the same arc and they all fire, 
and they actually count as having fired that round. So it's a lot less attack rolls the GM ultimately has to make. Mm. They attack as one unit with an average gunnery check. If they're successful, any vehicles that are of, of sil- in that arc that are of silhouette four or less are going to upgrade the difficulty of any combat checks they make to target you, your vehicle, once, plus an additional upgrade for every two advantage you generate. Mm. Furthermore, if they decide to be foolhardy enough to go ahead and attack you, mm-hmm. <laughs> because you've got this blanket barrage around your ship, yeah. if their attacks generate two threat, their vessel is going to take one hit of your weaponry damage at half the base damage. And if their attack generates a despair, highly likely with the upgrades, <laughs> that vessel is then going to take one hit at the full base damage. Yeah. Okay. So very powerful. And honestly, I mean, Huli, this is taken pretty much directly from Age of Rebellion yeah. for Star Wars. Yeah. When you start talking about vessels, and I know that people have had the same sort of issues with Star Destroyers in, in Star Wars, is that they have so many weapons. And you, when it comes to combat, you don't want to be rolling initiative for everybody on board. That just doesn't make any sense. And you certainly don't want to be, you know, doing for every single gunnery emplacement. So Blanket Barrage and the next one that we'll talk about, Concentrated Barrage, it really allows those the, the larger vessels to really come into their own without a lot of paperwork and, and without a, a lot of effort on the, the GM's behalf. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, very, very potent for, for Blanket Barrage. So with Concentrated Barrage, uh, again, it's, uh, it's not a pilot-only action. Uh, it's Silhouette 5 or greater and, again, speed of 0 to 3. Now, to do a Concentrated Barrage, the first part is very similar to the Blanket Barrage. First, you have to select a target. Then you choose a bank or series of weapons that, you have, that, that have the same firing arc and all have the same weapon type. Additionally, there must be at least two weapons of the same type in the same arc to use this action. So basically the same uh, restrictions as there are for, for Blanket Barrage. So, for example, if we look at uh, the, the three-mast frigate, for example, on uh, page 231 of the core rules, you'll notice that it has 15 starboard, 24-pounder uh, cannons, and another 15 to its port. Each have a base damage of six and a range of long. Uh, you can also see that there are uh, four starboard and four port nine-pounder cannons. Now, in this case, we choose all 15 24-pounder cannons uh, on the starboard side and fire them all at the one target. Now, we can do that with the same on the other side, but we have to choose a different arc that's going to be appropriate to that side, obviously. Uh, now, additionally, we can't choose the nine pounders as they are going to be different types of weapons. So they don't fit the, uh, the, the bill or the restrictions. Now, although the character is firing multiple weapons, uh, the, the character makes a single combat check as normal uh, with the appropriate vehicle weapon actions. If successful, the character may spend one advantage from that check once to add damage equal to the number of weapons involved in the attack to one hit of the attack. So if we look at the three-mast frigate, if we rolled two successes on our check and one advantage, we would do six base damage, an additional two points of damage from the successes rolled, and with the single advantage, we can add 15 
to the damage. So that's 15 from the, uh, the 15 24-pounder cannons. And this isn't an extra hit. This is added to the hit of the check. So you only apply the armor from the vehicle that is being attacked once. And I tell you what, that speeds up combat so much. Um, more useful versus uh, capital ship versus capital ship. Uh, and when we start talking about, you know, massive capital ships, they've got huge hull thresholds. Um, but, uh, you know, as has been pointed out um, numerous times, most combat should only be taking between three to four rounds in total. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, this is one way to really increase the damage. Uh, and it's a pilot. It's, it's not a pilot only um, action, uh, but it is an action, which means that you can only do one of these per turn. It's going to use up all those weapons, so it's going to give that same benefit. Exactly, exactly. And I, I also love the fact that blanket barrage only affects uh, opponent vehicles that are silhouette four or less, mm. whereas concentrated barrage, this focused fire, can only target a vehicle that is silhouette five or higher, mm. right? All right. So you know, so the blanket barrage is like you know, I'm going to use all my bristling guns for a defensive action. Concentrated barrage is. I'm going to use all my bristling guns to punch a hole in in in, in, a, in a flow capital ship, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's all of the actions and maneuvers for any sort of vehicle combat. However, as we, you know, you've you've got a group of of player characters and they're on board their freighter or or whatever, that they're going to be just a little bit bored sitting around just watching the pilot do their thing and watching a gunner do their thing. So obviously, and I think you've mentioned this before on Order 66, Chris, that during this, all of these additional actions didn't actually exist in the beta. This is something that was uh, added to because of, of the feedback from players who were saying the same sort of thing that that it just there wasn't anything for them to do during combat when it comes to vehicles so they've added quite a number of different different additional actions that can be performed um, by co-pilots and um, you know for the sometimes the pilots can also do it as well but it's mainly for characters that are sitting around basically doing nothing else so so let's go through those briefly so okay and and Huli, i mean I, I don't think you know in the interest of time and the fact that we're really focusing on vehicles and 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 characters piloting vehicles i don't know that we really need to go through every single one of these because there are quite a few but yeah. for our our listeners they are summarized in full detail um they actually don't even have proper write-ups in the book they're in a table mm-hmm. um it's table 3.2-17 um, additional vehicle actions, uh, which is actually located in the core rulebook um, on page 229. But I mean, at a high level, I mean, maybe we can go through just what the what the names of these are to give, I mean, because they're, they're very self-descriptive in terms of what they do. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got plot course, uh, we've got co-pilot, uh, which is good if you've got somebody, you know, your buddy next to you, um, mm-hmm. jamming, um, which um, you know is is kind of handy, and it's a lot more narrative. Um, boost defenses, uh, manual repairs, fire discipline, 
which is a handy one for anyone who's the leader of the group. <laughs> Scan the enemy, which uh, is great for, uh, you know, if you want to know a little bit more about your enemy uh, and what sort of you're up against. Hack enemy systems, which is a really unique one, and I'm glad that they still included it. Uh, so uh, take a look at that one as well. It's very, very handy if you've got a computer guru on board your ship as well. Um, and the uh, the last one is intercept projectiles. And so when, you know, those missiles are firing towards you, you've got a way to obviously knock them out of uh, of space before they actually hit you. So really, really handy there. Now, a lot of these additional actions, like everything we've gone through with like maneuvers and actions, they can really be used, I mean, reasonably for any vehicle type in any setting. Mm. Okay. When you look at some of these additional additional actions, especially stuff like hack the enemy systems or scan the <laughs> enemy, mm. right? Um, or intercept projectiles or jamming. These are things that are obviously going to be limited to very specific types of vehicles in very specific types of settings. Mm. And those vehicles need to have very specific types of systems installed. Okay. Um, they're not anything I would do in a car chase, typically. <laughs> um, but there are others like, you know, boost defenses or co-pilot or plot course that actually can make sense, you know. Mm. Um, you know, fire discipline um, can can make total sense. Mm. So it, it, it's one of those things that you really want to take a look with your own unique setting as to what additional actions that you really wish to include if you're going to be including vehicle combat. Mm. And honestly, I mean, we can... We can go through a lot of these in further detail in future episodes, but yeah. it's just important to know outside of the vein of what we're talking about right now with with vehicle combat and 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 very you know characters that are using you know piloting, driving, operating to use vehicles. Outside of that, these actions are there, and they add so much beautiful flavor and option, as you alluded to earlier, Huli, yeah. to a ship based or vehicle based combat encounter. Yeah. Um. So, dude, yeah. Very cool. Oh, Huli, um, <laughs> this, this has been a tremendous amount to take in. Yeah. And, and we've only scratched the surface. Yeah. But hopefully, listeners, we've managed to make this somewhat digestible for you and given you a handle on very specific things that are going to kind of set the stage for continued discussions. Mm. Can we can we go through very briefly uh, and remind everyone kind of what we've discussed? What have we what have we learned? What have we gone through? All right, so we've talked about the range bands, uh, which are engaged, short, medium, long, extreme, and then the newest, which is strategic. Uh, we've talked about how Star Wars has uh, the range bands in two tiers, uh, or their two-tiered approach, while Genesis basically has taken everything to use the same range band names, and everything's operating in the same space. Okay, well, what about space, Huli? Because, <laughs> you know, we, we're keeping things fairly generic for Genesis, but, like... One of the things that uh, you, you can justify Star Wars having radically different range bands between personal scale and vehicle scale mm. is because the majority of vehicle combat in Star Wars takes place in space. <laughs> and space is very, very big. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, how do we represent that here? What, what about space? Well, look, obviously what happens is that the rules do cover this on page 225. And, um, you know, as you say, space is big. And what they mean is that when uh, when you're out in the deepness of space, the chances are that you're going to be in a vehicle. And if you're not, you're probably having a really bad day. So, <laughs> so where everything is in space, um, when we're talking about vehicles, the range bands, narratively speaking, can be larger abstractly. Got it. Okay, so 
we got that under our belt. Mm. Then we kind of went through the basics of a vehicle stat block. Mm -hmm. We talked about silhouette. We talked about max speed, handling, defense, armor, hull trauma threshold, system strain, uh, strain threshold. And then, then this, all the secondary characteristics as well, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So we've gone through control skill, uh, the uh, complement, the passenger capacity, consumables, encumbrance, and how much it can and it hold, the, uh, the price and rarity uh, of the vehicle, and then obviously weapons. And uh, apart from a few things, you know, none of the stats blocks really change from Star Wars, other than perhaps shields or, or defense, uh, in that there are no longer shield facing. So we just have the one defense rating. So it really simplifies that. Yeah. And then, guys, we obviously spent a fair bit of time talking about the various types and actions, uh, types, uh, types of actions and maneuvers that you can perform. Uh, the difference between pilot-only action or maneuver and a standard action or maneuver. Um, and lastly, we, we talked about other actions that could occur within a vessel, briefly. Um, you know, performed by passengers, co-pilots, gunners, and, and everyone else who's sitting around doing nothing, in <laughs> quotations, uh, during ship combat. You know, the, the, that great table that's located on page 229. Mm. We have summarized in about a minute what was 90 minutes of conversation <laughs> with a lot of good discussion. But we still have so much to go. And this was a hugely requested topic by so many of you. So we can't tackle it all in one episode. What is next, Hooli? What are we going to cover in the next set of vehicle episodes? Mm. So, look, we're going to go through uh, a, a number of things. And I'll talk about that in a tick. But, um, you know, we've covered the ins and outs. As you say, we've, we've really covered the basics. And this is what we needed to do before we can have a further discussion about um, how to build vehicles, how to modify vehicles, um, and and obviously, you know, combat itself uh, and running vehicle encounters. And that also includes chases. Now, chases is something that we didn't really discuss in, or that, that isn't discussed in the in the Genesis Core rulebook. And there are a couple of reasons for that, but we'll talk about that next time. Um, but uh, one point that, that I really need to raise, because it, it was raised to us by one of our patrons, uh, who wanted us to talk very briefly about uh, Mecca in Genesis, because it kind of works a little bit differently, or it appears to. In the EPG, uh, there is the Tactical Strider and the Mecca, both of which are, are on page 66. So these are the, the two main, I guess, if you were going to do some sort of like a Battletech or um, or any sort of Macross Saga type stuff. That Gundam. <laughs> Gundam. <laughs> or anything that you're basically using. So uh, really, that's all that you need to use. Uh, however, if, if it's a major theme within your setting... Um, and the, the characters are still using spaceships and, and other vehicles, you might want to consider changing it up and adding a mech pilot skill specifically for those vehicles. And I yeah. say that because it works differently to a, to a standard vehicle, I guess. You know, you're not just jumping in, you know, turning on the engine and, and running with it. There's a lot more uh, dynamics to those sorts of vehicles. So I think that having a mech pilot skill would be an appropriate choice in that sort of a setting. Um, but uh, And the only other thing that I would like to add as well, um, in that sort of circumstance, if you're doing like that mechs play a really big part, is you might want to look at the vehicle quality called mechanized. And this is one that I've sort of like come up with. 
um, and it allows a Mac to move even if it's at speed zero. Now, that goes against the grain of, you know, speed one, speed two, etc., and that at speed zero, nothing moves. The reason is, is that obviously mechs move around and they, they get into close combat and whatever else. So you want to really have them as uh, almost characters themselves, but a much larger form, but using the vehicle rules. By having the mechanized, oh, I guess, special ability that allows them to move at speed zero, you don't have that problem. And they can still, they're not concerned with, with force movement. And that's yep. sort of something that really hampers that because you're sort of at speed one, you are forced to move one range band. And that might be okay, but if you want to be sort of like hacking into one person and moving on to another one and hacking into the next one, you know, you might yep. want to be slowing that down to zero. So that's something to consider. Another simpler way to put it is I love this house rule of this mechanized vehicle quality. Mm. If you had to put it another way, it allows you to use the reposition maneuver at a speed of zero. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and, and, and in, that, in, in that way, it's just like personal scale combat. Mm. You can spend a maneuver to move a range band. Yeah. Okay. Just like personal scale combat. Mm. But at the same time, you could also spend a maneuver, a pilot only maneuver to accelerate and get that mech running. And, you know, you're going to have forced movement at that point until you decelerate. Mm. Um, so very engaging. But, yeah, I, mad props for that house rule. Yep. Great house rule. Cool. Whoa, mm. That's a lot. <laughs> so. Um, that, that is an absolute, absolute lot. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a lot to take in, man. Mm, it is. But look, once you get your head around it, and it may take a couple of times to uh, to listen through that episode, and by all means, take all the time that you need, because it is something that if you add it to you, your game, it adds so much more that you can do things like jumping between trains and, and uh, boarding actions between ships and all sorts of extra things that that really are a dramatic and they're, they're flavorful to what we see on screen. And that's really what we're trying to replicate when it comes to, well, that's, that's my rule of thumb anyway. Um, I want to make sure that my action encounters are going to be the sort of things that we see up on screen. So, uh, so this really does help that. Now, one thing that I want to mention is that, um, you know, the, as far as our other episodes go, that we've always made sort of the rules downloadable that we've we've raised. Now, we'll, we will still have one for, uh, for this particular episode, but it won't contain anything that we've talked about uh, other than maybe um, what I've talked about with Mechanized, um, and, and that's pretty much it. And the reason is, is that we've really just gone through the, the rules as written to try to explain it to you in a very, very simplified form. Uh, so that uh, hopefully you can you can take that up. So, um, but uh, there's something else that we've got. Uh, well, that I've got working in the wings, um, working on in the wings, which is uh, the zone rules. Now, this is something that uh, was developed by uh, GM Huzz, uh, GM Flano, and myself um, in the in the dice pool. So, um, so yeah, that's that's just something that uh, we'll be talking about in a future episode. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, guys, if you have questions about what we've discussed, let us know. Points of clarification. Post it up on the Facebook page, and, and we'll get we'll get to answering that for you. Mm, absolutely. Now, um, yeah. So 
obviously all of this won't be in our next episode when we start talking about vehicles again, because we're going to be talking about something else, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, But, uh, you know, when we do discuss vehicles again, uh, we'll be talking about, uh, you know, the, the huge ships of the line. So the capital ships, how you can be using those effectively in your games uh, and how you can be using them basically as set pieces uh, and how they all fit into how combat, um, you know, works around them. Uh, we'll go over some of the other rules around vehicles, including body actions, collisions and critical hits, which are really, really important. And lastly, we'll open the discussion to talk about running vehicle encounters themselves, um, you know, including chases and how to best represent them uh, in your foundry product, as well as on your gaming table. Um, And then the last of this series, which uh, we'll be doing, obviously, three and may go to four, but um, uh, we're hoping for three. The last uh, episode will be dedicated to um, taking an in-depth look at creating vehicles, modifying vehicles, vehicle attachments, and also answering any sort of further questions that you might have that you may have sent through to us that we haven't covered off on so far um, about vehicles. And we'll be doing that with a very special guest uh, as we bring Keith Keppel back to the show. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. I can't wait. <laughs> oh. All right, Huli, you know what else sounds great? What's that, Chris? The dulcet tones of our two special guests awaiting in the wings. (laughs) Well, that tells me that it's time for some more Breaking the Mold. Breaking the Mold. Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventures, campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators go above and beyond, subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content out there. Now, tonight's guests are two of the team members behind the highly popular silver-selling Genesis setting of Starkana on the Foundry, which we covered way back in Episode 2 of our podcast. Joining us then and returning now is the D20 Radio alum of GM Phil and newcomer to the show, Elizabeth Foote, both from Studio 404 Games. And they've returned to discuss the latest and greatest Starkana goodness with a new Starkana supplement that recently hit the foundry, which we mentioned earlier on the show, The Silver Files, a Starkana magic expansion. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. And Phil, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us, Ian. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> awesome sauce now obviously phil it's good to have you back um always you know, always you, you and i never get the chance to talk no. uh, <laughs> and and beth it's good to have you on for the first Hi. time so i want to talk to you because phil's phil and and <laughs> most of our listeners know him and his proclivities and gaming history quite well and we, no longer care and we, we know and we, we no longer care we're we're immune um you know, but but Beth, you are the new voice to the airwaves, so perhaps you would like to tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your gaming career. Sure. So I feel like a lot of people come to tabletop gaming th- uh, sort of as their their gateway to sort of nerddom. Um, I did not. I actually came through buffer larping. I've done been doing buffer larping for about nearly twenty years, um, and I've only been getting into tabletopping over the last three years or so. And most of my GMs have been Phil. So I'm pretty spoiled, honestly. 
My background is actually in creative writing and in marketing. So I have an MFA in creative writing, uh, and in that program, I wrote a lot of fairy tale and fantasy fiction. But the bulk of my professional experience, and another part of what I bring to Studio 404 is product and event marketing. I manage the website, and I oversee social media feeds and other res- marketing responsibilities for the company. Um, and I also uh, do writing and editing for um, our products. That's kind of where I come from. Ooh. And, you know, since Phil's, like, only been your primary GM, you don't have a frame of reference. You think you're spoiled, but he could suck. You don't know. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you never know. It's true. You, you never well, know. Yeah. Well, we use Gamer Nation Con as a kind of, like, a barometer, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, her other GM was Brev at, uh, at uh, Gamer Nation After Dark, so... That, that's a hard. That's a hard show Ooh. to come. You know, compare to. Yeah, but that was. I mean, that was drunken D and D. So I don't Which know. Which was awesome. It was. I mean, no, no, it was awesome. Totally awesome. But I feel like that's not like probably the standard of what. <laughs> Table topping usually involves. I don't know. <laughs> when 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 Brev's GMing, that is the standard. But <laughs> okay, great. Okay, that's good. Good to know. I'll have to sign up for more of his games at Gamer Nation. Club. Absolutely. <laughs> Look, I'm going to ask. What is you mentioned it before? What is boff larping? Oh, boff or larping? It's that? where you um, it's where you dress up as a character, and you go into the woods and kind of. Instead of tabletopping where you have an adventure of like where you're doing dice and you're describing the adventure, you actually go out and act it out. It's kind of like a it's almost like a big improv program. Like have you ever been to a like a, a mystery dinner theater? Yep. You know, murder mystery dinner mm-hmm. theater where you're all kind of like interacting in a um, improvisational sort of way as mm-hmm. the characters. Sort of yep. you have a character, set character with potentially some goals, and then you're all kind of interacting with each other to sort of accomplish those goals. It's kind of the same sort of thing, but um, it's kind of in a grander scale, like a weekend, a weekend long scale. And you generally are running around the woods with like foam wrapped plumbing supplies <laughs> and nerf guns and yeah. you have hit points and abilities and skills and you pretty much do it from Friday night until Sunday morning. Wow. That sounds cool. It's a think, good time. I think, I think a lot of gamers are familiar with LARPing. It's yeah. just uh, boffer LARPing specifically, I think, is is what, what, what the differentiation might be. Mm-hmm. Right. The terminology of boffer is basically that's what they call the weapons. And so they're like, you know, swords and um, other kinds of, of um, implements that you hit people with. But they're wrapped in foam and duct tape uh, and stuff like that so that they're right. safer, you know. Yep. So you're not mm-hmm. going to hit people with, you know, things that are going to cause lasting damage mm. or any damage really so right. that's funny cause I've, been, I've been hit with some of phil's boffers and they hurt so <laughs> just gonna i guess you it. just i guess you just gotta toughen up chris well I mean, that's what my <laughs> wife tells me all every day <laughs> um. uh dear. now as we ask all of our guests now we've we've talked about that side of gaming so what sort of style of game or game setting or theme do you like to get on the table when you play, what's what's the your favorite thing to play in Genesis? Starkana notwithstanding. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately, that's been the bulk of my experience is the Starkana. Not unfortunately, no, not unfortunately, but in terms of a selection, um, I also do. Um, Phil has me in a, a Fallout game, and I really enjoy that. Nice. Yeah, a Fallout style game. I play a um, a five foot tall blonde pigtailed inventor named Gidget. She is a mechanical genius, which is super handy in the post-apocalypse environment. So that's pretty fun. So Fallout, Gidget, love it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, guys. So let's talk about why we have you here. Let's talk about the Silver Files. 
Give us the pitch. Tell us about this supplement. How how would you describe it to someone looking to purchase it? So the Silver Files is our first major supplement for the Starcounter campaign setting, and it focuses on a very prominent aspect of Starcana, that being the magic that is suddenly infused in, within this world. Um, unlike a few other settings, and sci-fi settings specifically, that have magic kind of reintroduced into there, mm-hmm. in the Starcana world, there's never been magic. Like, take Shadowrun, for instance. Shadowrun is the sixth world, insinuating that the fourth world and the second world all had magic. There are creatures and artifacts and, you know, tomes of lore that have progressed through this, uh, the millennia that are being recovered in in the Shadowrun setting. And so there's this kind of this heritage of magic that's being reclaimed. In Starcana, there's never been magic. This is a completely new thing. So it's a lot of people just trying to figure out what this is, how to use it, with no guidance whatsoever. Um, and Silver Files really encapsulates that in a couple ways. Uh, to start off, are the actual the first chapter is the actual Silver Files themselves. Um, one of the more prominent personas in Starcana is a woman named Lady Argent. She is a CEO, president, and owner of Swiftwind Enterprises, this giant interstellar conglomerate of companies that is quite rich and quite powerful. On the surface, and to everyone, she is a benign philanthropist. Um, and whether or not there's anything more insinuous insidious there is all to be determined in play uh but one of her agents uh a breaker named pause has gone out and gathered a bunch of historical records that relate to starkana in many ways like um the first recorded use of starkana a corporate incident between uh, a corporation trying to take over uh, mineral rights on a planet out on the edge of space. And the actual first Starcanist is ha- happens to live there, and, and they have a confrontation. Um, there are documents about uh, the professor at SOU University, uh, a prominent university that we detail in the book later on, making a pitch to their dean of studies to start a, the first Starcana class in known space. Uh, and it finally ends with a kind of a coup of, uh, of link breaking, which is hacking um, skill and, and ability of someone who is able to get secret files from and, and private journals from someone who is connected to the Elder Council, which is the highest level of organization in the Valithic Church, our big, you know, kind of all encompassing religious uh, organization in, in Starkana. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the Silver Files themselves. It's a whole in-game perspective thing and some really wonderful creative writing by a bunch of our writers. Moves into some uh, gazetteer style settings and locations. Talks about Soros and Ornithus University mm-hmm. and their Starkana program. Talks about Valithic City, which is a giant arcology. Think like, you know, the Vatican City, but, you know, a 47 level arcology. And also talks about a something that's happening in the world now that Starkana is kind of bleeding out into the galaxy. These places called bleeds, areas where other realms and other dimensions are kind of getting thin and, and leaching into the, the, the real the quote unquote real world. And kind of like what happens to thing creatures and the environment in those areas and how they affect spellcasting in those areas too. Mm. 
And then the final section is just new rules. Uh, new, uh, we introduce a system for learning magic spells. Uh, we uh, introduce several new talents, a bunch of pre-made spells for folks to use in Starkana or any campaign setting, really. Just some handy-dandy, hey, I need a spell that's an attack spell. What have I got? Oh, okay, I'll cast this one, you know. Mm. And and a couple new uh, magical-themed adversaries. So Starkana touched beasts. Yep. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, what what drew you to to do a magic supplement for Starkana? Because Starkana has a lot to play with as far as the setting goes. So, why magic? What were you hoping to to bring to the table with with this supplement? And magic is a really fundamental part of what makes what makes the world of Starkana sort of interesting and kind of what drives it. Yeah, and. To, to that point, I touched on it briefly, was that magic is a little bit different in Starkana in the sense that there's no heritage of it. It's it's brand new. So we also wanted to be able to provide our players and game masters some guidance of, okay, here's how the world perceives magic. Here's how the magic is interacting with the universe as it starts to become more widespread. So we wanted to... We felt that this was the first place where, we, if for our first supplement, we really needed to give some guidance, give a little more story and um, storytelling and narrative focus as to how the world perceives it, mm-hmm. and a few more rules and ideas as to how it's kind of affecting the universe and how game masters can introduce more of it into into the setting. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that, that makes sense. Now, as you point out, though, guys, I mean, this 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 supplement's over fifty pages long. You you mentioned, you know. The gazetteer style content, which I think is a really creative way to introduce the concept of of magic into this world. That's really fun, and the way you've done it, mm-hmm. you know, but these these location setting details, the new rules, new talents, new spells, the 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 new threats you mentioned. Also worth mentioning, some great art, um, mm-hmm. as we've come to expect. Yeah, so right, did a very good job hunting down all the art pieces that we uh, we used in this book. I mean, yeah, it's it's fantastic. What what can you tell us about? I mean, considering this this massive tome. Can you tell us about the development of of the Silver Files, Files itself? What what did you know? I mean, uh, what did you know you wanted to include? What did you leave on the cutting room floor? What was the process of development and in terms sort of finalizing? Okay, what what needs to be in this offer? Well, we definitely wanted to get more story in. We wanted to get more narrative. The, we the Sarcana campaign setting uh, does a very good job of kind of giving you the bare bones of the the, the setting itself. Um, but we need to get more story out. I mean, we've got Beth, who's a who is an MFA in creative writing. We have, you know, all of us are solid writers and star- solid storytelling writers. And so we wanted to get a little of that into, into the book as well. You know, have some fun things to read, have some really interesting perspectives to, uh, to kind of draw from and to get, hopefully give some of these things, uh, some of these people and places voices that hopefully inspire people to, uh, uh, players to, to make characters that kind of al- align along those lines. Yeah, to really enrich the world, I feel like. Um, we also wanted to introduce the fact that um, one of one of my big projects on this was the uh, spell learning system, and I wanted to kind of heighten the fact that there is no real like magic college. There's, with the exception of the church, there's no heritage of spell casting at all. Hmm. And I wanted to show that, yeah, the Genesis magic system is very open and very versatile, hmm. but also kind of hint that without a, a a legacy of teaching it, it can be very difficult. And it is difficult for folks to just kind of whip up any spell they want. 
which is why we we kind of introduce it as a sort of a, a learning effects system. So if you don't know an effect, if you're or rather if you're casting a spell without an effect you don't know, every effect you, you add to a spell that you haven't quote unquote learned, you're also upgrading the difficulty of each of the check in addition to adding difficulty to that check. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes it very very risky to cast big spells that you with lots of effects that you don't know. And it kind of encourages you to kind of like, you know, stay in your lane until you can learn some of these additional effects and then kind of broaden out the magic system. It seems like that's an optional uh, area of rules that could apply to virtually any area of Genesis magic use. Which which is exactly the which was kind of exactly the point. Um, yeah. A lot of the stuff, especially in the rules and even in the um, even in the 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 gazetteer section, you know, where we start talking about locations and and bleeds especially. Um, if game masters are looking for a way to have like a quote an, a fire touched place, you know, and where the fire elemental plane bleeds into the world, uh, look in the look in our bleeds write up and go to the fire plane and and, and introduce that. Um, any of the spells that we've kind of broken down, like, you know, Flames of Zybar, you know, it's, it's right there for you. It's a divine spell for uh, difficult. Uh, difficulty is daunting, has the blast, the holy and the ranged upgrades and just tells you all the effects. You don't have to, like, try to piece it all together. Game Masters have a nice set of, like, 50 spells that they can just quickly dive to if they're just looking for something different or if they want to have their players have like, hey, here's a cheat sheet of, of spells that you could try to throw if you are really strapped for something. Mm-hmm. Um, the talents that we introduce in this book are, are also you know, designed to be included in any fantasy or, or sci-fi setting that's got magic in it. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Strakana touched creatures can always be like thrown in. You know, who doesn't need who doesn't need an NPC stat block, you know? One of the things that that I found quite unique in with this setting, well, with um, I mean your setting generally, but specifically with with the silver files, in comparison to some of the other products that we're we're seeing a little bit more so on the Foundry, is that as far as sort of stats and rules and whatever else, you're scrolling for a long time trying to until you get to that. Because of the, the the attention to detail that you guys have put into the, I guess, the fluff of the, the setting first and foremost, it's mm. amazing. And, uh, you know, a testament to you guys, it's great. I love it. And I wish we could see more of that because it really um, delves you into the, uh, the setting more so than just, right, well, okay, now we're going to talk about rules. We've got a really great creative team, I feel like. Um, when we meet regularly and we have a lot of conversations about the kinds of things we want to include. Um, and, you know, I, you know, the parts that I wrote, you know, I, like, when I first wrote them, I was like, this is great, you know, like, put it out in one night. I'm like, yeah, this is great. And then, you know, 15 drafts later, <laughs> like, of all of the editing um, that... Okay, kind of, now this is great! Now this is great, right? <laughs> so it's like this, it really helps to have a collaborative team that is yeah. Studio 404. I feel like it's in, it's really increased the value in, my in like, certainly my experience of it, and I feel like the, the final product is so much better that we have because we have the group working on it. Mm. Very much yeah, what so. sounds good in your head doesn't always translate to the page directly, and <laughs> it's always good. And I know that this has been mentioned many times on the Forge, but get someone to read your work. Mm. Yeah. Get someone to look it over, proofread it, copy edit it, review it, 
because they they will point out things that might that sounded perfectly and made total sense to you, <laughs> but in someone else's reading of it, they might go, "I'm a little confused here." So yeah, and that really, I mean, that whole process really enabled us. I feel like to create some quality fluff as you add the fluff text, as you put it um, to, you know, the additional uh, enrichment and contextualizing of the world. As far as stuff that didn't make it into the book or ended up on the, ended up on the cutting room floor. But the only thing that I can think of is that I think we may have had another half dozen adversaries that just because of like time and, you know, real life, we just, didn't have the ability to just get done. We said, look, let's let's finish up the stuff that we know we need in this book. We can always add more adversaries as like a one-page supplement or a two-page supplement later on. But, you know, if we don't have these spell-learning rules locked down, then, you know. Yeah. I think it helped um, to have a pretty good outline at the start of it. We had oh, ideas yeah. of like, okay, this is what, like, especially in the fiction section, it's like, okay, these are the things that we want to touch on. These are the pieces that need to be written. Um, and here's how, and then, you know, we write them and say, okay, this is how they're going to fit together. This is what we want to show. So I think that having a sort of a clear vision in the beginning really, really helped, um, helped uh, streamline the process. Yeah, very much so. Now, you guys have talked a lot about what's actually in the product already. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there one particular part that you could perhaps give us a glimpse of that you haven't already spoken about? Or tell us sort of something that is that you're really, really proud of. I mean, Phil, obviously you're proud of what you've done with the magic system. Uh, for the setting, is there anything else that sort of uh, really you, it just made you want to write more and and put more energy and effort into it? Um, well, as far as from like the writing perspective goes, um, Beth handled the the journals of of priest of high priest Lark, um, which I think is some phenomenal storytelling. Mm-hmm. She did a real great job with that. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as from like a, a preview and like kind of a, kind of a more detailed thing for the silver files themselves, um, let's talk about bleeds for a second. Um, as we mentioned, bleeds were sections of the galaxy where things get real thin between the real world and kind of alternate dimensions or perhaps elemental planes. And uh, let's for as for an example, let's talk about Earth bleeds. Um, Within these bleeds, jagged rocks break up the barren plains. It is common to find assorted crystal or gemstone formations. Flora is very rare, consisting of scrubland plants and tumbleweeds carried on by the wind. Local animals include natural burrowers or climbers, mostly with hard carapaces. Some rare animals have crystalline carapaces or claws, while others have acidic blood or venom. Now, that's just like the kind of the fluff write-up as far as what you'll find in an earth bleed zone. As far as what will happen from a game perspective... Skill checks to locate mineral deposits add advantage to the result. Mm-hmm. Survival checks to forage for food add to threat to the result. Mm-hmm. The lightning additional effect may not be added to any spell. Primalists using attack may add the impact additional effect without increasing the difficulty. Mm-hmm. Primalists using conjure to create earth or crystalline objects gain success and advantage to the check. And creatures affected by prolonged exposure to the bleed develop crystalline growths that toughen their form and natural attacks. They gain the earth bleed ability, plus one soak, immune to knockdown, and their brawl attacks gain the pierce one quality, or improve the attack of existing pierce quality by one. 
And that's just one of the various types of bleeds that we've got. We've got the classics, earth, fire, water, wind. We also have some rare bleed types, such as decay and dream and vital. And uh, additional bleeds may come in to be introduced in later products. <laughs> Very interesting. I want to know why there's no lightning. That's cool. Don't tell me. <laughs> okay. Leave that for people to uh, to read for themselves. <laughs> there you go. I'm really I'm really pleased with this supplement, guys. It, it's a good supplement for a couple Thank of you. reasons. One one, it obviously expands incredibly well on the existing Starcana lore. So so Starcana fans that are out there are going to get a lot out of this supplement. It's kind of a must buy. In addition to that, though, for people who you know haven't delved into Starcana yet, this is a great place to start. But I'm sorry, any any Genesis group that is running a fantasy game or any game with magic in it can use half of the content in this without exception. Um, I mean, the, the new threats, the new magic capabilities, and quite frankly, the bleed zones, those are th those can be easily transitioned to any fantasy setting where you've got, you know, my, my, I mean, or, I mean my, my brain goes to Eberron, right? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, where you have manifest zones um, for people trying to replicate that. But any place where you've got this weakness between planes of existence, uh, you know, I, it just, yeah, man, it's 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 good stuff. So, I mean, for those of you listening, uh, I mean, seriously, you you've got to give this a check out. Um, it's 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 well worth uh, the price of admission, mm. um, and something that's going to bring a lot to your games. So, I want to thank you guys for coming on to uh, talk to us about it. I guess my last question is uh, the obligatory, <laughs> but also you know, very importante question. What is next from <laughs> Studio 404? Next for Studio 404 is Gamer Nation Con. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love it. You guys are running um, a series of, uh, of of special events at Gamer Nation Con. I'm um, going to have a dedicated table. Yes, um, we are. I, I can't wait. Um, I will be running Starkana. Uh, Kimber will be running a urban fantasy, kind of a interesting hodgepodge between like Stranger Things and the Dresden Files. Nice. I'm really excited about that. Uh, Alex is going to be running a spy-themed superhero Weird War setting. Anyone who played his superhero Weird War setting last uh, last year, same or or pretty much most of the most of the same characters, but definitely much more of a a World War One Two slash Two spy theme going on there. So that should be a lot of fun. Uh, and Brett will be running a post, how do we describe it? Post magical apocalyptic heist adventure. <laughs> That's that cool. has trouble written all over it. Oh my. And, and I'll be covering it all from a social media perspective. So keep an eye on our social media feeds. Nice. Very You can find it all at studio404games.com. <laughs> I'm the marketing person. I have to do Obviously. that. Obviously. It's the, the plug. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Studio 404 is amazing, and so is Phil and Beth. They're great. That was a great yeah. interview. Dude, Brett, Kimber, the whole crew, oh, Alex, the, the whole crew. They're they're just they're just fantastic. Yeah. Can't wait to see him at Gamer Nation Con. Mm. Um I, I and 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 take part uh perhaps hopefully personally, in some cases vicariously in the amazing games they will be running. Um I absolutely cannot wait. But mm. uh big props to them. And if you guys haven't 
God, what are you doing? If you're living under a rock, if you haven't checked out Arcana yet, please do so. It's a fantastic setting um, and a real benefit to uh, the Genesis system and and uh, you know the the Foundry overall. Ah, mm. super, super, super exciting! <laughs> I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. But you know what else I love, Huli? Oh, I don't know, Chris. What do you love? I love cake. Um, I also. <laughs> Um, I also love uh, listener questions yeah. um, and, and, and discussing them. And I think we may have a few. We do. And we're going to ask those and answer them in Under the Hammer. Under the Hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis role-playing game as it impacts both rules, content creation and play. Again, we've got some great questions this week with a couple coming from our Patreon supporters and a follow-up question or two from our previous episodes, which is cool. Uh, Of course, if you would like to join and get your questions to run to the top of the queue, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis and become a Tier 2 supporter today. All right, Chris, what's our first question? Mm -hmm. Our first question comes in from David Klempa via email, who says the following. I started listening to the new episode, episode 14, he's referring to, um, and a question occurred to me regarding the uses of skullduggery. If you were playing a gambler in a session of, say, Dusters and Dragons, (laughs) um, and you wanted to cheat in a poker game, what skill would you use, stealth or skullduggery? Hmm. Neither? <laughs> <laughs> so basically the answer to that is maybe either or. depends on, on what the intention is and it depends on how the player is describing. However, Star Wars does answer the question for us and it's actually cool. So if you're wanting to be doing that sort of stuff, if any sort of uh, card game where you know, you're trying to keep yourself nice, calm, and not giving away any of your tells, cool is the one to use. But if you wanted to to be a little bit uh, more, what's the word I'm looking for, Chris? A cheat. That if you want to be a cheat, yes. <laughs> so if you want to be a cheat, skullduggery could be uh, definitely uh, a rule, uh, a skill that you could use uh, in this sort of scenario. What's your thoughts? Um, I think skullduggery or deception mm. um, are, are the two the two go to skills for cheating. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, David, I would not allow stealth for cheating at games of chance. Yeah. Um, I flat out wouldn't allow it because <laughs> um, stealth is about hiding your person, not being seen or noticed from a bodily standpoint. Mm. Cheating in a game of chance, like palming a card or manipulating a die or something like that, that is very much the realm of sleight of hand or pickpocketing, and that is distinctly the realm of skullduggery, yeah. I mean, as, as you go. So you can cheat in one of two ways. You can either do it through sleight of hand or you can do it through flat-out lying, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and that is where deception could potentially come in play. But the go-to skill is going to be skullduggery. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then for standard gambling, if you want to be an honest, upright gambler, as Willie <laughs> said, yeah, it's cool. Mm. So yes, it's the art of the bluff. Any sort of uh, games of chance, uh, specifically uh, cards, because it is so close quarters, it's very much a social interaction, um, yeah. and it's the manipulation and those mind games that you play with people. 
Um, you know, so, uh, so yeah, definitely a, more of a social skill. And look, you could, if you want to go down that path, you could almost use the social skill rules for, uh, for that sort of a thing as well. Hmm. Yeah. All right, so our second question comes from GM Godmo or Goodmo or however it's pronounced. You know what I'm like with names. Um, anyway, they ask via email. Hi there. Hi. Uh, Hello. <laughs> love the show and listen all the time. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I'm glad you do, and I hopefully you're still listening. Uh, I'm trying to find the question you mentioned on a previous episode regarding whether social strain carries over to combat with the usual recovery of strain occurring when ending an encounter. I'm a bit confused by it as I've heard other podcast GMs in a live play wipe the strain from the social encounter when transitioning to a new encounter. Any help would be appreciated. Best regards, GM Gutmo. Um, so clearly that GM is wrong and he's doing it wrong <laughs> and he's failed the game. He's just not, no. Uh, this is really a piece of GM discretion, Goodmo. Yeah. Um, there is a lot we can infer from the rules as written, mm. but there is no direct rule that states how this would work. Okay. Here's what we can infer from the rules as written. A social encounter or social combat is another encounter, just like a combat encounter. If you move from one combat counter encounter to one combat encounter, the GM doesn't wipe your strain. Mm. They, I mean, I mean, you you make your end of encounter strain recovery roll, and you got to deal with like just like wounds with the damage you just took. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and the same really should apply in a social encounter, moving to a combat encounter. Mm. Frankly, you know, if you were moving from a social encounter to a social encounter directly, you wouldn't be wiping strain. All right, mm. so. They're both encounters. They're both governed by the same rules. If you're taking a pure interpretation of the rules as written, extrapolated from what we best we can, no, you really shouldn't be wiping the strain. Um, now, having said that, a good GM will often take extraordinary measures to protect the player's fun. Mm. All right. And if I had a social encounter, I just put my group through and things went horribly wrong and they're all very strain damaged at this point. They have a ton of strain. And then crappy rolling happens and either through no fault of our own it was just the dice's fault or because as a gm sometimes i just get caught up and have a hard time planning things appropriately i end up kicking them directly into a combat encounter i might have them wipe their strain if it's going to be a nasty combat encounter but i'll do that to keep my party from dropping you know what i mean those are some of i mean those those are the calls you sometimes have to make all right but if you're looking for a pure interpretation of the raw Although we don't have an actual raw ruling, we can extrapolate a lot. And my interpretation and well-reasoned opinion is that, no, there's nothing that says you should wipe strain completely. Mm. And one thing that, that uh, I mean, again, I look at it from a, a storytelling perspective or a movie perspective. If you've got people that have, have been taking part in a social encounter and their strain is, is, is really affected – and let's say that they were trying to negotiate a deal and then suddenly the, the, the air raid sirens go off and so they have to jump in their planes and, and take off and do combat. You could, if somebody's strain reduces to zero for whatever reason, it could be rather than falling unconscious, it may be a case that suddenly they're having flashbacks or they're just, you know, they're, you've got that moment of, that we see in Top Gun, for example. Um, right at the start of the movie, where um, uh, the the character I can't remember where his name was, 
Um, but Chris, you're a big fan. You'll probably remember it. Right at the start where, um, where Mav manages to help him land. You know, he's he's having that sort of he's got that concern with regards to his family and the fact that he's in this fighter plane that he could die, that sort of thing. He's he's totally awake, but he's having this massive meltdown, um, and yep. that can really add to the uh, to the drama of the story that you're telling as well. So, so yeah, there's there's two and four, but I agree with you, Chris, that uh, if you can see that your players are just going to you know, they're not going to be able to do the uh, additional manoeuvres and whatever else, and it's going to be a little bit boring for them. Just give them that help along. You you, you can. I mean, honestly, I mean, my, my but my prerogative is actually I wouldn't. It's like you guys got yourselves into this situation. <laughs> um, you know, some of you are going to drop or you can flee this combat encounter right now. Yeah. You know, because yep. you, yep. you you're exhausted. Yeah, uh, I mean that's that, but again, that's that's the prerogative of the players in the game. Mm, and I mean that's that's where characters with um, some talents uh, that uh, can really help along to uh, to bolster people's uh, confidence um, and and bolster their uh, their strain. You know, that's where those sorts of things come into play. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. So hopefully that answers your question, uh, GM Goodmo. Goodmo, I can't. Whatever. <laughs> so, um, so our last question, Chris. Yes, this comes in via email from David Kaufman. He says the following. The setting I'm designing can be summed up as a green fantasy Antarctica, uh, largely inspired by the Eocene era before the glaciers overran the continent. So weird, man. (laughs) I I love it. Um, One of the species has a unique ability, partially based off of one mentioned in in your episode four. Mm -hmm. They can make checks with a particular magic skill without having ranks in it. Mm-hmm. However, they get one additional setback to their checks whenever they use this ability during the daytime. Um, at the South Pole, daytime lasts basically six months. I'm having a hard time figuring out how much this ability should be worth, and I would like to hear your thoughts on it. Mm, so would I. Because <laughs> you're the one that came up with that ability, Chris. So what's your thoughts? I would say at least 10 XP, mm. um, even with the even with the setback die in place. Mm-hmm. Magic is magic is tough, man. We talked about this. You 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 want to err on the on the on the side of overcosting magic magic related stuff. Always, 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 mm-hmm. always err on the side of overcosting it. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say this: you don't give me a whole lot of detail, David. <laughs> uh, so I'm making a lot of assumptions here. If you're giving them the ability to use a magic skill without having ranks in it, that's cool. And with a setback die that would reasonably happen all the time. Mm-hmm then I would say they could probably get away with it for 10. I think I would say 10 XP, maybe 15 XP mm. if, if they're going to do it all the time. Mm. If they can do this for one particular spell or can only do it once a day, then I would, I would definitely cost this at only 10 XP. Mm. If you're going to say they can do it all the time, I would probably go a little bit higher than that, probably to 15 actually. Mm. Um, but that's that's my rough gut estimate because I mean this is this is powerful. I mean I mean it's a it's a it's a core staple ability of things they can do that you know w- without having to spend skill ranks in it and that's a that 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 breaks one of the fundamental rules of magic. So mm-hmm. you're going to cost things a little higher for that, mm-hmm. and you're going to give them a lot of benefit without having to take the appropriate career or 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 even even if they if they can even access it uh, skill rank. So yeah, yeah I would. I would definitely, definitely do it mm. at, at probably 15 XP, maybe 10. 
Yeah. Um, I knew you'd know the answer <laughs> because I was a bit stumped when it came to that. But um, look, yeah. the, the, the only other thing that, that I should mention is, is that if you've got characters that can use magic all the time, I think over time they're going to get frustrated if they don't spend XP on it anyway. So, um, you know, it's... It will make the decks, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even if you do have uh, a a four in that particular uh, spell actions uh, attribute, that it's still still going to frustrate you at the end of the day because you're going to be able to do really simple stuff. Um, You're going to have a setback uh, for the most part um, for any sort of check. So, um, you know, the, I, I think that probably at the start it may be beneficial, but I think that over time that uh, that, that would sort of, uh, yeah, it, it wouldn't have as big an impact uh, because they would eventually be spending some points in, in those um, magic skills. Yeah. Anyway, that's my two cents worth. <laughs> it, it, it's a good two cents. I hope that helps, David. Mm. And uh, if you give us more details, I'll give you a more detailed response. I yeah, promise. Absolutely. Just email us back. Yep. Sounds good. Or, you know, post it up elsewhere. And maybe we can talk about that. Because, Hooli, mm. those, were, those were good questions. But this, unfortunately, brings us to the end of yet another show. And so it does. But we'll be back in just a couple of weeks for a return to our ongoing segment of Magic and Reskinning It in the Genesis system. That's right, listeners. Our next episode will be the penultimate show on the planned magic series, um, although we shall no doubt return in the future. <clears throat> but we're going to be taping up the final bits of wrapping paper on our big box of reskin magic into mutant powers uh, with a continuation of our discussion, taking a deep look at talent creation, uh, usage penalties, and also uh, specific uh, recommendations and tables for threat and despair for mutant powers and how that can be and should be modified appropriately. Yeah, and I've been doing all my research because I'm obviously going to put in some uh, talents in there as well. So, uh, yeah, I've been listening <laughs> to the previous episodes myself. So uh, I've got a lot out of uh, what we've discussed about magic so far. So uh, so it's been really good. So hopefully you listeners have also got uh, just as much out of it as I have. Um, and all of that is before we finally get to the topic that I'm most excited about. Uh, which is implements and equipment, which uh, is really exciting, and I love, I love, love, love the way that they've done uh, implements in in uh, their Magic Genesis system. It's great. <laughs> I know, I know, um, and uh, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, but to keep things interesting, though. Um, I, I before we even get to that. Uh, we will, as you alluded to before, be returning back to our vehicles discussion mm. uh, before we get to that final magic episode. Yeah, so. and we also have at some point, because we promised our listeners as well, uh, and it's just a matter of uh, linking with Sam, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to have an entire episode uh, specifically uh, in the furnace uh, where we'll be discussing uh, talent trees and how we can create those uh, for uh, for our settings as well. So that'll be really exciting too. Oh, yes. Oh, so much to look forward to. And uh, while you wait for the release of all of those episodes, please continue to send us any other questions that you might have about Genesis, uh, being a GM or a player, or just any gaming-related questions that you like. And how can they do that, Chris? Easy. You guys can email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or... Perhaps even easier, post it up via one of our many social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit, simply by searching at Forge Genesis. 
Uh, we've also been having some really great conversations on the D20 Radio Discord channel, and of course, truly dedicated conversations with our Patreons on our very own podcast Discord server. And we would love to hear from you all. So don't forget that you can also join the even larger discussion, um, talking about more than just Genesis. We're talking Star Wars and Fate and all sorts of things in the D20 Radio Facebook group, where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And don't forget to give us a like or a follow as well, guys, on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites or... or or on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes and Spotify. The reviews mean so much to us. They really help the podcast grow. Um, so please help us out there. You guys can also visit us, of course, at our website at forgegenesis.com. Absolutely, they can. And that's a wrap for us. Thank you all for going through and listening to, to us uh, talk about vehicles. And hopefully that's, uh, that's helped you out. And uh, we hope that you can join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm GM Hooley. May your triumphs be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, the social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forge.com. Genesis.com.